thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. And now we start the podcast right as Mark is actually having his lunch. This is going to be a new and exciting development. What's for lunch today? It's a vegetable chilli soup, which they were selling downstairs in the canteen. I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly fluey, but um, oh, there's nothing. Great. Thank you. Oh, thanks for that. Um, there's can, nothing, I, can I, go, no, you can can I do a remote studio thing? Oh, come on. Like, oh. You haven't done shows when you're a little bit under the weather. Well, would you like... I've got some... Uh, some fantastic stuff for your throat. What is it? Oh, my throat's fine. What's the fantastic stuff okay, you've got? Well, if you don't need it, it's fine. Well, what, what is it anyway, just in case for future reference? Well, this bit will either be taken out or it won't be. OK, is, is it, it a book? No, no, no. <laughs> these, no, these are... <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, I've just been writing a book about how to get through flu. Mm. <laughs> uh, no, it's actually... Uh, Have you actually got it here? Is this like Medical Corner? Yeah. Go on. Uh, at, at Radio 2, I'm next to uh, the Steve Wright studio, uh, next to the Steve Wright, Steve Wright production team, and yeah. they're constantly getting him stuff, because <laughs> he's always poorly. What's up? Anyway, there you go, that's what you need. What is it? Oh, no, I've got them. Oh, OK, fine. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's Put, no big deal at all. Puts away drug bag. Yeah. <laughs> Four quid. I love the fact that that is what passes for a drug bag in our world. Can I just say that, um... Jamie Cullum likes them. Likes what? Those? Those. Whatever they are. Mm-hmm. OK. And Tom Jones. So we retweeted a tweet from uh, Susie Dent. Her in uh, Dictionary Corner is how she describes herself. Just found the word emosh in a novel from 1912. Now looking for totes. And then a little bit later on, she tweeted, Earlier still, in an NYC Pulp Fiction mag, Everybody's Magazine 1908, talks of actors loving the chance to, quote, Emotion. So when we say totes emotion, we're actually... We're being very, very historical. Antiquated. Yeah, we're not. We're not being down with the kids. We're being down with our forefathers. So does that make it Edwardian? I think that finishes when did it... It would. In uh, 1906. Ah. Hello, Mr Mayo. How are you feeling, totes emotion <laughs> and Delamaze? <laughs> Doesn't sound as though it's the kind of thing you'd expect Lord Grantham to be saying, does it, really? Well, I, 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 apparently there is a historical place Julian, in the world. Get, get Julian least... Fellows on the phone. Get, let's find out whether he would ever put Totsimos into the next yeah. series. Because Hugh Bonneville... I saw that shake of the head, by the way, as soon as I looked away. It was a nod of a head, looked away, I know, saw it. I know, that's what he does. Hugh Bonneville is going to be on the show next week. So Lord Grantham is going to be on the show next week. So we need to run all that stuff past him. Where, whether Lord Grantham would ever say Totsimos. Is he on talking about Paddington? I imagine so, that being a movie. We're not going to allow him to speak about anything to do with television. OK, fine. Shall he, shall he be discussing Paddington Gate? It's not. I've already sorted it. Turn oh, him fine. on Radio 2. It's fine. Okay, it's, fine. All, it's all fine. We're going to talk about acting and movies and stuff like that. OK. I ran out of things. I know. No, okay. so, do, you remember, do you remember last week? I do remember at last this week. Stage of the podcast, despite being 52, I do remember last week. We had a marriage proposal. I'm which, not 52, I'm 51. I keep lying about my age. Okay, but you're in your, we're both in our 50s for mm, the moment. Yeah, okay, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm more new to my 50s than you are. So, I'm still 34, by the way. What, waste? No, thir- 32 waste. 34. You're never a 32 waste. Are you? Yes. This is not going in the direction I was expecting. You. <laughs> okay, all right. <clears throat> what are you then? I'm the more generously proportioned man. <laughs> uh, okay, so we had a marriage proposal, which actually kind of wasn't a marriage proposal, though I suspect probably secretly was. Okay. Anyway. 
This was the one that sort of it was quoting uh, the end of Four Weddings and a Funeral, saying, yes. "Would you agree not to marry me, and would that be something that you would agree to do for the rest of your life?" It's yeah? from a guy called Mark, and it was to Emma Dolby Bowler. That's right, and you and then you and you wonder whether it was Bowler or Bowler. Well, anyway, on her email, she does sign it Emma Dolby Bowler. That's as in cricket spin or a hat, that kind of thing. Okay. So it's definitely Bowler. Are you going to eat that? Yeah, while baguette. you're talking. Okay, but it's not tr- a baguette. It's soup. Don't make it audible. Two soups. So Emma gets in touch to say, well, that's how it starts. Well, I like that. It's like an email that starts with so. <laughs> well, my boyfriend and I were listening to last week's podcast, having a lovely time in Lisbon for our 10th anniversary, when I suddenly hear his name, followed very quickly by a prolonged discussion on the pronunciation of mine. To be completely Which we honest... just revisited, yeah. Yes, absolutely. To be completely honest, I was terrified. Having confidently told friends and family that Mark and I were on the same page and that there was no chance he was proposing any time soon, was I about to have to eat my words? But no, having laughed, awed, and on occasion, and I'm looking at you, Toy Story 3, Dad, I think that's me, cried along Excuse with me. Why is that you rather than me? I don't know, we I'm both, just... Well, we're I both think, Toy Story 3, Dad, we both yeah, cried. I was the one who had to dig my fingernails into my hand <laughs> to, to avoid sounding like a complete wuss. Anyway, I now had the hugely surreal experience of listening to my favourite podcasters reading out some lovely words about me, but with no proposal in sight. So thank you, Mark. That's Mark, the person who didn't quite propose. There's a bit in Four Weddings where Charles is wondering why people get married. Oh, yeah. Someone tells him. Someone tells him it's because couples run out of things to say. The man panics and asks her to marry him. Luckily, you will never ever. I think she's talking to her Mark now, not us. Luckily, you will never ever run out of words ever. You are my best friend and the person I have the most fun with. I'm so proud of you. Now, if that bit is aimed at us, that's quite moving. Yeah, but you're suggesting that it's not. No, I think it's aimed at uh, boyfriend Mark, not us. Oh, well, couldn't you just say that to him? Why don't you read it back as if she's saying it to us? Okay, all right, I'll do that. Luckily, you guys will never ever run out of words, Evs. You're you are my best <laughs> friends, and the people I have the most fun with. I'm so proud of you. Thanks, M. We're well, really thanks, proud M. of you. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. Great. Now, do you think there is the remotest possibility mm-hmm. that although when Mark emailed in, he was sort of saying, "I don't, I don't, re- you know, I don't really want to marry you." Yeah. But let's stay together. Actually. Suddenly whispering. Well, because it sort of feels like we're talking about someone else's relationship. And I'm just wondering if they're, if they're listening on the podcast, whispering won't make it. <laughs> she she really doesn't better. want it. She's... Like, this is like that kid hiding behind their hands, and if you can't see me, I can't see you. So, so go on. You th- so, you think that the subtext of his lengthy, I, you know, will you not marry me? Will you not marry me for everything? Yeah. Was actually. He was being respectful to her. Yes. But I think actually secretly he wouldn't mind. Is that right? I think so. What do you think? I I wouldn't presume to uh, to hold an opinion, but I think the fact that you're saying it in such a sort of slightly ribald way—they're anyway, very—they're clearly a delightful couple as they are. Yeah, they don't need to. It's just fine. Right. Tell you what, we'll play the wedding, right? Also, then look, she says at the end, ten more years, ten more years." So she might, that might be. That maybe us. it is to it us. It is about us. Yes, Everything. she doesn't want to marry us. That wouldn't be allowed, would it? <laughs> unless we unless we change. Change what? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Okay. Emma, thank you very much Steve, for the email. We are touched. And Mark. <laughs> Is that Mark with a C? <laughs> mean boyfriend or Mark with a K? <laughs> Mark with a C. Yes. Thank you to the future Mr and Mrs Burrows. <laughs> <laughs> you old sexist. <laughs> oh, listen, don't look at me.
You're an old dinosaur. Don't do that in my family. Why can't they be Mr. and Mrs. Dolby Bowler? Because they can. I was yes, just making a cheap be. traditional. I was making a joke about tradition. Peter for Gordon. The purposes of humour. We're moving on now. Peter Gordon, dear dude and lack of donkey. I was surprised to hear at the end of this week's podcast that the BBC technology correspondent, Rory Kethlin Jones, was mm. unable to get Snapchat working correctly. Mm. Not just unable but singularly unable. I feel that as a software engineer by profession, I am well-placed to provide Rory with a detailed guide to solving his Snapchat problem. So I have. How do you get Snapchat to work properly? You just, just get, get Snapchat, Snapchat to, to work, work properly. properly. Love the show. Keep up the work. I have to say, the Snapchats that were taken so beautifully last week by Simon, the producer of this programme, I didn't get them either. So it may well be that when Rory didn't get them... that You didn't no get one the one them. of me going off to the loo. No, I didn't get it. Just didn't, it just didn't come through. That was... Producer Simon's classier moment. Can you make sure that your Snapchats this week are slightly sharper and cut through my filters or whatever it is I've got? Have you, is, it, is, it, is yours being filtered out? You've got some Snapchat filter on that says you can't have that. It'll obviously be filthy. Could be that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll check the junk. When I say, incidentally, to, for, when I say going to the loo, I don't mean go, I mean going off on a walk to go to, just to be clear. Should we talk about pipe smokers? Go ahead. No, that doesn't work. You're not going to do pipe smokers? Uh, Dave Bartlett. You asked if there are any podcast listeners... Dave pipe- Bartlett? Yes. Do you know him? Not of Shawaddy Waddy. Oh, that's Bartram. Dave Bartram. Sorry. Former lead singer of Shawaddy Waddy, now their manager. Mm, you spelt just- their name wrong on Twitter. You call them Shawaddy Waddy, but they're Shawaddy Waddy. Like anyone cares. Like I care. First band I ever saw live. Like I care? Yeah, at the Lido in the Isle of Man in 1974. Three, four. Lido. Support, supported by the island's only heavy metal band, Black Mass. Not best heavy metal band, only heavy metal Good band. Good double bill, though. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Dave, who isn't from Shwadiwadi but is at Rogue Green in Manchester, you asked if there are any podcasters who were pipe smokers. I am both. What can I do for you? Well, I don't know. We just wanted to know if you were there. <laughs> we haven't. Anyway, I'm just off just outside now to spark up using my German 9mm filter half-brent Half-bent briar. I mean, is that a pipe? I, I don't know. I don't smoke a pipe. Del Mixon. Uh, no, we won't do You're not a pipe smoker. It's our pipe smokers. <laughs> Get pipe out of the way, Del Mixon. Martina in Edmonton. I write to you, uh, yes, to add my name. Talk, and I, I can only imagine to be a shortlist of pipe tobacco enthusiasts who listen to your programme. Do you think, can we assume Martina is a woman? Uh, I I believe that Martina is... It's got an A at the end of it. It's yep. a, I, I think that's a female name, yeah. OK. There's no reason why women can't smoke pipes, but it's just a surprising image. Well, I'm sure there are, there are women that smoke pipes. Not well, that, de- demonstrably... Not that many people that smoke pipes, but women smoking pipes in Edmonton, it might only be Martina. I, I think you're being... Um, you know, I think you're drawing on stereotypes... <laughs> Oftentimes... When you were coming in today, how many <laughs> pipe-smoking women did you see? Well, to be, honestly, to be fair, honestly, I didn't see any pipe-smokers. There pipe you go, that's what, I, that's no. what I was trying to say. Anyway, I picked up the habit about the same time as I joined your church of entertainment four years ago. Since oh, so then, now it's our fault. Since then. It's our fault. The podcast has proven a merry companion to my charming vice. The two accompanying me on many sleepless nights and pensive afternoons. Sorry to say, I do not resemble a naval officer nor a radio announcer from a bygone era and as such often attract raised eyebrows and amused looks from onlookers when smoking my pipe outdoors. I believe... What? No, I believe that Barry Norman uh, smokes smoked a pipe. 
Well, I think I, I, I think now, forgive me if I'm completely misremembering this, but I don't think I am. I think I've been in a screening room with Barry Norman smoking a pipe whilst enjoying a movie. That must have been a long time ago. <laughs> it was, it was like yes. There was somebody hand-cranking the projector in the background and an orchestra playing the accompaniment. Martina, we're very glad that you're listening. Thank you very much indeed. And we want everybody to listen. Thank you very much indeed. Mine's a pint. Thank you. Would that be a deal-breaker? If you started going out with someone, I know that's not likely to happen because uh, very happily married and so on, to a good lady professor her indoors. <laughs> but if when you'd started going out with her, yes. she got out a pipe... And- <laughs> On your first date and puffed, would you have thought, she's not for me? No, I think I would have been taken. I would have thought, what what frontier spirit she shows. Anyway. I think, actually, I think we should get her to do it in lessons. Okay. In lectures. We're going to have to stop now because the show's about to start. However, here's my contention. Martina is the only female pipe-smoking wittertainy. Okay, and then I guarantee you by next week's show we will have at least... Maybe. At least ten messages from people, A calling you a sexist and B saying it's not I sexist it's just an observation I'm just saying if I'm not sexist but no you're bending my words not bending okay. your words what you just said how many do you think there'll be how many female I just said I gave you a figure I said uh, I, there will be at least emails. there will be at least ten ten female pipe smokers who listen to this show yes at least okay who, who bother to email in I don't think so I think it's only my how much team. do you bet me uh uh, oh, hang on. I think if if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. I will get you a German nine millimeter filter half bent briar. Fabulous. Well, unless that's a tank, <laughs> in which case I can't run to that. Do you think it's I likely put it on that expenses. he was going out to spark up a tank? Sort of works in a Brad Pitt fury kind of way. <laughs> because people said you can't do that in the house. The show is going to be a bit of a come down after this. <laughs> it is this really, is so surreal. We've peaked. We have peaked. Mm. Anyway, so now it's downhill for the next two hours. What's up? Well, blimey, Charlie, it's that five-life thing with flappy hands and Charles Watry talking. It's wittertainment and it's most wittertaining. With flappy hands and Charles Watry talking, let me introduce you to wittertainment. It's a dead amaze accomplishment. If you like two men bickering, it's just the ticket. It's like Test Match Special, but without the cricket. It's the UK's flagship film programme. It might save your life or help you pass an exam. But the humble presenters will rarely gloat because they still don't know who's driving the boat. And that is... This is our... Well, this is a... Someone has written us a theme tune. I, I've never thought we've needed a theme tune, but Dave Goody, ex-chief projectionist at the University of Warwick Student Cinema. I think that's quite... Yeah. Oh, there you go. It, it goes on for about six hours. That's, that's the thing. Anyway, he said, I've been a fan of the show for more years than I can remember. However, I feel there's something lacking. Uh, you haven't got a theme tune. Barry Norman's film show had the wonderful piano of I Wish I Knew How It Was To Be Free. The Test Match special team have Booker T and the MGs, but the loyal army of Wittertainies don't have anything, unless you count the woman shouting thank you at the start of the podcast. In an attempt to remedy this, I've composed a Wittertainment song, which I humbly submit for your consideration. Anyway, it's very funny, even if it's got a bit too much of Mark in it. So uh, that's your review is not enough of you. Yeah. So anyway, we've linked. It's on, it's on, if you go to our Facebook page, and I think we've uh, linked. If you follow us uh, on Twitter at Wittertainment, I think it's all. It's, it's all. There. Is it on Snapchat as well? 
Don't think it's. I don't. I don't can you link to anything? I from have Snapchat? no idea. I don't know. Ask Rory Kecklin Jones. He's the. You know. He's the. He's useless. useless. Utterly useless. He is absolutely useless. Uh, so anyway, welcome to the program. Mick Jagger's on just after two thirty, talking about the new James Brown biopic, which he is the producer of. Of, of which, which he, he is, is the, the producer. producer. There you go. How scary is that? After after all these years, I finally, finally corrected myself. Correcting yourself. Yes. Now. Uh, there is a podcast which goes to this programme, which is available usually soon after we come uh, off air, and it is many people's chosen way of listening to the programme. Um, and there are some things that we talk about on the podcast which we don't talk about uh, in the, the, rest show. Of the show, so we, keep, we try and keep them separate. But we've just done part of it. Yes. And one of the things that we were talking about is people who listen to this programme while smoking pipes, mm-hmm. of which there are a few. Apparently. <laughs> anyway, I had this, I just, so I just want to bring it from the podcast, haul it, you're crossing the streams. I am. You're crossing the streams. Dragging it into the rest of the show because yeah. Martina's email, who listens in Edmonton, yes. not in North London, but in Canada, right, uh, says um, that she wants to be on the short list of pipe tobacco enthusiasts who listen to this programme. Clearly, we don't condone this. It's a bad thing because yeah. it can uh, make you poorly. So, anyway, so she says... I think they should put that on the tin. Yeah. Can make you poorly. She said, I don't resemble a naval officer nor a radio announcer from a bygone era, but I, I do attract raised eyebrows and amused looks from onlookers when smoking my pipe outdoors. Now, I'm just, I was just wondering whether Martina is the only woman who smokes a pipe while listening to the show. Is it a small category? Yeah, and I said that I bet you by next week we'll have 10 people e- uh, emailing in to say that they do, but we'd like to stress don't take it up just, just, uh, just for just us. To impress us. Because. No. Anyway, so tobacco that's I, in general not good. I just think that's interesting enough, really, to bring it into the into the show. Are there any other women who smoke pipes and listen to this show at the same time? What about, what I, about, Martina? Might I think she's the only one. What about is there anyone who goes ding with a spittoon? Yeah, the the chewy thing. You know, you ever heard that? Remember that song, Chew Tobacco, Rag Number Two? No, Chew Tobacco, Chew Tobacco, Rag bass Number line. Two. Goes, yeah, anyway, it's funny. Tom, uh, blue gloss ones, very good. Anyway, so uh, mail at bbc.co.uk, 85058, uh, social media, all that. Dear Diamond in the Rough, this is uh, Tom Powell, PhD candidate, still two years until I'm on an intellectual par with you two. Best of luck, and I don't mean best of luck to be in an intellectual I mean best of luck with the remaining two years of your PhD. As part of my PhD in biochemistry, I have to attend several highly educational and slightly boring conferences throughout the year, the main draw of which is the free lunch. After an incredibly long day suffering through one such conference, I found myself walking home late at night. This is almost like a confession, by the way. Late at night, mm-hmm. wrong tune, and felt the need to pop into the shop to pick up a ready meal for a quick tea. We've all been there. As I walked into the generic supermarket, I saw something staring at me from the entrance, something I knew the good doctor would not approve of. It was the DVD for Transformers 4. Already. At the time, I can only assume my brain was thinking something along the lines of, I've had a hard, long day, a silly film about robots hitting each other is just what I need. I decided to purchase it. I knew and this, more fool you. I knew this was a mistake as soon as the checkout lady gave me a slightly disgusted look <laughs> at the tills. Credit to her. When the credits started rolling and my microwavable food had become fully digested, the one thought that came into my head was, this film has no plot. I mean, genuinely no plot at all. In general, I think the term no plot is thrown around too easily. For example, some say Taken has no plot, but in fact, it's about a man who treks across France to save his daughter. Die Hard 4 Point Less, while incredibly silly, is about stopping computer terrorists. However, in the case of Transformers 4... Nothing actually happened or made sense for the full two and a half hours of running time. Despite the robot dinosaurs. 
aren't he wants to whether there are any other movies that just truly don't have a plot it was genuinely nothing happens at all well i mean it's uh, you have only yourself to blame for enduring uh, transformers 4 which is uh, it's not the worst of the series transformers 3 is is, i think the you know the the most insufferable have you dropped something i have what have you dropped i've Drop my phone, because, and I've only got my phone out, by the way, because uh, it's already tuned in to the IMDb. OK? Right. Just because, well, I haven't seen Transformers 4 because that was your job, but surely it must have a plot. And they say, Autobots must escape sight from a bounty hunter who takes control of the human serendipity, unexpectedly. Which kind of doesn't really... It's not even English. No. Anyway. I've seen the film. I don't recognise that as being the plot, but there okay. we go. Uh, anyway, so it's mayo at bbc.co.uk. Mick Jagger uh, on the way. So shall we... Uh, by the way, apologies for the kind of flanging right at the start of the show, because right at the very oh, beginning, yes. it was all kind of... all sounding all weird and flangy. But can I delight you with a bit of uh, um, mu- uh, music trivia? Is this going to be a showbiz anecdote? Very, no, it's not. It's a bit of engineer stuff. Do you know where the word flanging comes from? Uh, no. Okay, the word flanging comes from uh, when they were recording using reel-to-reel tapes. The engineer would lick his finger and put it on the flange of the spinning reel, which would make the reel go slightly slower and slightly faster, slightly slower, which would produce an in and out of sort of phasing effect. And that's why flanging is called flanging. Why does the why, But why is a flange called a flange? Oh, I don't know that. Oh, I see. Okay. I just wondered how It's a word. I don't know why that is, you, you know... It's, but, but it's... Okay, fine, thank you. I thought that was actually very interesting. Here's the box office top ten, then. Uh, at number ten, it's... <sighs> it's me. The Cure wouldn't have been The Cure without a flanger. It's Ouija. Yeah, I don't know about that. I haven't seen it. Okay. At number nine, you've had a week. No, I know, but I, that's, I told you I wasn't going to go and see that because everyone told me it was rubbish. Uh, so should we just settle on that? Yeah. Uh, number nine is Fury. Which is... Interesting up to a point, uh, has some great action sequences, is terribly macho, is very flawed in its uh, in its complete inability to know what to do with its uh, women characters. And so a bit of a mixed bag. Turtles at eight. <sighs> and not as terrible as some other... I mean, it's, you know, Michael Bay's pro- producer fingers are all over it, so you get the gags about the Victoria's Secret commercial and all the rest of it. But so not as terrible as your Transformers, Michael Bay, which he's actually doing himself, but pretty turgid and n- not fun. Uh, and... Uh, just lost the top ten. Book of Life. There it is. It's Book of Life at number seven. But I'm really pleased about this, because when the Book of Life came out... And it was it was kind of getting looked like it was going to get lost in the mix, and I think it's a really interesting animation. I love the fact that it you know takes the Mexican Day of the Dead and uses that as the basis of its story. I thought that the you know the, the animation itself was really enchanting, and the songs were funny and you know very musically literate. And it seems to have done really well. It, 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 we've had loads of emails from people who've been to see it who were surprised by just how much they and often their children enjoyed it. Simon Butler went to see uh, The Book of Life with my girlfriend and her seven-year-old daughter. We all loved the film, especially the daughter who was hand-jiving to the music by the end and, importantly, kept relatively still and mostly quiet for the whole film. I thought the design, animation and voice artists were all superb. The story was very engaging, easily passed the Six Laughs test. Yes, easily. Perfect film film for the family. I saw it with James King and we laughed all the way through. All the family then. Yeah, it was like taking a child. You know, I took James to see what you know how the child would respond, and he laughed all the way through. Uh, Gone Girls at number six. This no, is no, no, you've missed out. Oh, oh no, you have. No, you have. No, you're right. You're right. Get Karen. Straight Actually, to number six. Six after seven. Seven moving straight on to six. Sorry, yeah. So you're the one who used to used to do the top ten countdown on uh, Radio One, not me. Uh, Gone Girl. I think you and I both like it very much. I think we have managed to talk about it for the best part of however many months it is now without giving away the crucial plot spoiler, which is quite difficult. Um, I think that. 
It's got a great cast, and I'm very, very surprised that some people have been sniffy about Ben Affleck because I think that what Ben Affleck does in that film is brilliantly slimy. Tom Knox, wheelchair mixed martial artist, MA in European history, first place sack race, St. Charles Primary School, 1996, brackets, I didn't have to hop, close brackets. Wow. This Wednesday, I had a three-hour assessment morning for a graduate recruitment role for a well-known international firm. I felt the assessment went well, and I'm now waiting to hear back. Afterwards, as I drove on the pavement, I use a chariot of electricity, a wheelchair. I was greeted by monsoon-like conditions. My brain was frazzled. I wanted some light relief from my intense morning before I started my preparation for another interview on Friday. So I quickly checked what was on at my local world of cine via my generic fruit-based device. There was a showing of Gone Girl beginning in ten minutes. Can I just ask, would, would you consider Gone Girl light relief? Not really, no. <laughs> Intense relief. Yes. So I charged like shadow facts on steroids to my local cinema. On my way, I kept on saying to myself, it can't be as intense and dark as everyone keeps on saying, everyone including your fine selves. How wrong I was. It is. The film was <laughs> engrossing from the first shots of an early morning in Missouri. Ben Affleck sensational as the sleazy slime bull. Oh, Rosman good, good, good. I'm really glad engrossing. you picked that up. Well done. Also top marks for the choice of blue oyster cults, Don't Fear the Reaper, being on the, in the background during the scene when Nick drives his dad to the care home. Light entertainment it is not, but all I can say is fantastic performances, very intelligent directing. Thank you very much. It's weird how the, the, the good use of a pop song in a movie can completely change your attitude to it. I realise that one of the reasons why I really like the last Nick Sparks film is because there's a moment when they're playing the young couple and the guy gets into his pickup truck and he turns on the radio and it's playing uh, Into Your Arms by the Lemonheads off that, you know, Come On Feel the Lemonheads album, which is absolutely brilliant. And I, I said suddenly I felt even more excited about watching a Nick Sparks film than I usually do. And it's The Drop at number five. The funny thing about The Drop was there were some reviews which really said, oh, you know, oh, it's a masterpiece. It's not a masterpiece. I mean, it's a, an interesting three-hander. Tom Hardy, Numi Rapace, and James Gandolfini in what I believe is his final role, was his final role. And they play the roles well, but it is a fairly familiar kind of uh, neo-noir story. It's not remarkably uh, deep. It's kind of actually quite fluffy despite its you know, awfully portentous feel. And it does overwork its central dog's life sort of, um, you know, metaphor. I enjoyed it. I think the performances are, are, are really terrific. But but it is, it is in the end, incidental. Uh, Leona in County Mayo. Uh, home sweet home. I'm writing to you from the wet and wildy wilds, windy wilds indeed, of the west coast of Ireland on a dull and dreary November Saturday. The wet and windy wilds? Yeah. This is my first email. Wuthering Heights. But I can assure you of my LTL status. I have the pleasure of your wittering company on my long drives to and from my workplace, during which I can be heard by nobody but sheep and cattle in nearby fields, more often than not, in full and vociferous agreement with most of Mark's reviews. However, I loved the drop, whereas Mark seemed to be a bit... Mm, yeah, I was, it. exactly. Yeah. I thought the performances were universally wonderful. Gandolfini showed us very poignantly what a loss he is to cinema. I agree his with gruff that. exterior hiding his character's heartbreak about the imminent passing of his elderly father. But the film belongs to Tom Hardy as Bob, who has long been one of those actors who has a habit of being the best thing about everything he's in. He is a master of the subtle art of speaking volumes with nothing more than the furrow of a brow... Yes. And the flicker of an eye. I absolutely agree with that. In fact, I think I said in my review that he is one of those people who can convey great conflict through great silence. Robbie Jones, The Drop was my film of 2014 that I was most looking forward to. James Gandolfini was one of my favourite actors and it was heartbreaking that this was to be his final performance, but the film looked amazing. I literally couldn't wait but found myself hugely disappointed. It is not the film 
as advertised, and Tom Hardy and Numi Rapace's performances fall flat. Despite, oh, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I think the performances are all good. Despite Gandolfini playing his final role to perfection, The Drop is not the dark crime thriller you see in the trailers, but rather a film about Tom Hardy and his dog with a little bit of crime thrown in. I think that that, is, uh, that final sentence is fair. My, uh, Natalie Baker, my husband and I went to see The Drop after recently moving to New York from London. Excited by the prospect of a Brooklyn-set thriller revealing the shadier side of our newly adopted city and a super awesome cast, we chose The Drop as the first film at our new local 57-screen multiplex. Wow. Can that be true? Or she, I've got no idea. It's very New York. It's in America, though, isn't it? I mean, yes. you know, there's that thing. My friend Saul Rosenberg always said when he first went out to America, he said that you have to learn this thing with popcorn. Small means large, medium means really large, and large means where do you want me to park the trailer? You, you can't have 57 screens, can you? I, I don't know. It's America. 57 I mean, I, screens with nothing, nothing on. Nothing on. Ah, that's fine. That's, that, and then maybe is that, that what it is? It's a, it's a Bruce Springsteen gag. Natalia concludes, while it wasn't as ambitious or visceral as the town... The film did an excellent job of creating a chilly, brooding atmosphere and a growing knot of tension that stayed intact until the end. Yeah, no, there can't be. There cannot be a 57. There, there must be, a, as in Heinz, 57 varieties or something. It's, a, it's, it's exaggeration for the purpose of... Uh, effect. You, effect. And it worked. Yes. Mr Turner's at number four. I mean, I think that the battle about this is going to go on. I was talking to Mark Lawson the other day, and um, and he said to me, where do you stand on Mr Turner? I said, I'm a big fan, and, and he wasn't. He didn't like it. Um, and we had a sort of discussion about what we thought were, you know, its, its flaws and what we thought were its successes. I, I, and again, I, I'm just surprised that people haven't found it funnier. I mean, I, I, I watched it with colleagues, and we really laughed. And I thought that uh, Tim Spall's performance was magnificent. In fact, I did a blog one and in the moment I'd seen it, saying, I, you know, I think he, he should be up for Best Actor for the, for the Oscars. It's such a great performance. And yet many, many people have not just disliked it, but actively disliked it. Julian Bailey in Birmingham. Uh, Mark has expressed confusion yes. about why people do not give Mr Turner the adulation that it is deserving as a... P- fine piece of crafted cinema, and yes. yet the answer to this conundrum is staring him in the face. But it isn't, is that what it is? As he has previously complained about in other films. A thousand scenes, well scripted, beautifully shot, wonderfully acted and masterfully directed, are of no use if the story isn't the right one to grab the viewer. I sat in the cinema and saw an excellent piece of art, but the story that interested me, that I wanted to see more of, was not the humdrum success and ageing of Mr Turner, but the fire and passion of Benjamin Hayden's descent. Please, can we have everyone back on set as soon as possible and make that film as well? <laughs> well, that's something that you and I have discussed, isn't it? That I think about. It was always Kim Newman's thing. You watch a movie and you go, yeah, it shouldn't be about him. It should be about that other guy or her. Uh, so we've got Nativity 3, Dude, Where's My Donkey? <sighs> Straight in at number three. I mean, I, I, I absolutely hated it, and uh, as did most critics. And, and here's an interesting thing. Um, a fellow film critic... Uh, brought their daughter to the screening, to, to the press screening that um, that we saw, and uh, I think all the critics in the room were, you know, waiting to see whether whether her daughter, you know, laughed and seemed to be enjoying the film. And she, and she didn't. She sat utterly, sort of stoically silent all the way through the whole thing. And then we all went away and followed her. And we said, you know, it's 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 a really not a good film. <clears throat> Actually, I like the first uh, Nativity. And then afterwards, I asked this fellow film critic. I said, so your daughter didn't enjoy it. He said, oh no, she did. She really liked it. She thought it was really good fun. I said, but she didn't it made a noise. She went, no, but she enjoyed it silently so there was somebody in that screening who was enjoying it here's my email of the week unless we find a whole uh, secret club of women, women pipe smoke. smokers listening to us yeah. yeah jason in leon c last weekend i took my seven-year-old daughter lily to see nativity three dude where's my donkey the day before i'd been to see interstellar 
One of these films was a sprawling journey between far-fetched scenarios with an incomprehensible finale that was supposedly about the relationship between a daughter and her distant father. Yes. And the other was Interstellar. Very good, very good. But only one prompted the question, (laughs) Daddy, why are you covering your face? (laughs) This was when Martin Clune sang and danced to the theme tune. Yes. Well done, Jason. You win a Cracker Jack pencil. That is brilliant, yeah. Uh, Barry and Belfort. We should have some Cracker Jack pencils made. That that, that say Cracker Jack. Or they should say Wittertainment. No, I think they should say Cracker Jack. How about Wittertainment pencils? Is that a good idea? Yeah. Do we have a promotion budget? Can we have that? Somebody wrote in to say that they were in the BBC shop and they were disappointed to find out that there was no no Wittertainment merchandise. No no mugs, no tea towels, no T-shirts. A failure of the production team. We need... Posters, T-shirt. If there was one thing, what would it be? A badge? Mug. A mug. A mug. Because that's what people... Yeah, a mug. <laughs> Your face on one side. And, yeah. Okay. Barry in Belfast. Dudes, where's the film? If you're reading this, then tragically Nativity 3 has made it into the top ten. Whereas the first had some sort of narrative and a healthy dose of charm to move the slapstick along, this film is devoid of any redeeming features. That the character of Mr Poppy is the most sensible and explicable part of this car crash says it all. The only thing magical about this whistle-stop nonsensical tour of Coventry, Birmingham, London and New York must surely be the director who somehow managed to cast a spell over Martin Clunes that he consented to any of it. Clearly the material failed to make the cut for the next set of Dick and Dom sketches on CBeebies, so they decided to put... I think that's a slur on Dick and Dom. So they lumped it all... Bogies is funnier than Nativity. Dare I say it, a franchise that parents are obliged to fund, and that's the serious point. These trips cost money, Mm. with refreshments and all that. Mm -hmm. It's a... It's, uh, that is part of a day at the movies, and this film is not worthy of the expense that it inflicts. All associated should be ashamed. Uh, Paul, on this, I was dragged to our local cinema by my husband to see Nativity 3. My husband adores Christmas. I came home last week and it looked like Noddy Holder had exploded in our front room. <laughs> Our, our free view box is full of straight-to-VHS Christmas movies. He's been watching them for the last four months. I heard Mark's review of the movie. I was not looking forward to this cinema trip. But sometimes you just have to do what you are told. Mm-hmm. There's a wise one. Sometimes, sometimes just, just do what you're told. Go with the flow. OMG, I suppose the best way to describe how bad it was is to tell you that halfway through the film, I turned to my right to see my other half, the Christmas-obsessed person, fast asleep. I nudged him with a self-satisfying grin. There was no way I was enduring this alone. Alone, yeah. Fifteen minutes later, he said, shall we go home? Anyway, we actually stayed to the bitter end. Now, I enjoyed Nativity 1. I thought Martin Freeman was good. So did I. Nativity 2 was terrible Terrible. beyond words. Nativity 3, it's really sad to leave a movie theatre and think that the only good thing about the movie was the donkey, who managed to look embarrassed at being cast in this terrible movie. I wish I could find a wormhole to travel back in time and unsee this film. Very good, very good. That you get the picture. Yeah. Imitation games at two. I liked it. Um, I thought that Benjamin 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 Cumberbatch's performance was very good, and um, I I think that the film tells in a populist way um, a, a story that needs to be you know that needs to be revisited. There's been um, a bit of a fuss recently that there was an article saying that, oh the you know amongst all the other things that are wrong with uh, the with the, the imitation game it it accuses him of being a spy and nobody ever did no it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think it's a, a well-written, very watchable, very well-played story in which all the complexity and the depth is in uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character. He's playing Alan Turing. And the movie itself moves on sort of fairly clear-cut uh, straight lines as it juggles its three uh, time frames. I also think that Keira Knightley makes the very best of a role which, as written, 
is somewhat caricatured, but into which she genuinely manages to breathe, breathe heart and soul. Peter Spencer, on this email, I had very high expectations going into the film, as I think everybody is going to have. Having heard only good things from friends and reviews, I'm pleased to say it did not disappoint. Good. The story was incredibly compelling. The performance is fantastic. The script was witty and serious in equal measure. Benedict Cumberbatch is a brilliant actor. One of those is, yeah. who you forget who they are because they completely embody the character they're playing. Kira Knightley holds her own, however, often underrated or criticised, unfairly in my opinion, this performance should answer her critics with a big whatevs losers. The film was the right <laughs> length. I tried to use the right term. Very good. And kept us engaged throughout. Top marks all round, dead amazed, totes emotion, even some lols as well. Equally as impressive was the fact that despite a hard week at work as a year four primary school teacher involving late night markings and planning parents' evenings, I managed to stay awake for the whole screening. Oh. Finally, as a huge fan of clergy and cartoonist corner, could it be possible, please, to add to the various denominations of your church with a special group for the no doubt many fellow Witter teachers. Could it be teacher time? Anyway, hello to Jason, Sanjeev and Naomi. Very good. I, d- I would like to say on the subject of um, Kira Knightley, it is a very long time since I didn't like Kira Knightley. I mean, I've, I, 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 I realised that over the space of, you know, I have, I have become a proper Kira Knightley fan. I can't remember the last time I saw a movie in which I thought she actually wasn't, even if the movie wasn't great, that she wasn't good. Okay. I think she has, I think she's really good. You and, can email, a fan. you can email the show, mail at bbc.co.uk. We have uh, lots more on the imitation game. We have lots on the number one movie, which is Interstellar, which we'll come to uh, in a bit. Plus, in the next half hour, Mick Jagger. Yeah, can I just say how good the Snapchat coverage is at, at the moment? I've just been looking at our total... Brilliant uh, stuff, which is just you weren't getting any. Well, yeah, (laughs) it was. I had to swipe a couple of times. So you didn't know how it worked either. Well, it didn't appear where it was supposed to appear. What on your phone? Look, if Rory Kethlin Jones, BBC technology correspondent, doesn't know about it. How am I supposed to know about it? There was a marvellous thing after that podcast extra last week when we were standing outside with Rory Kethlin Jones and. one of the members of the production team was having to explain to all of it. And now this is how you do you do this. Anyway, so text 85058. You can follow us at Wittertainment. Uh, there's the Facebook page. You can email mail at bbc.co.uk and the Snapchat as well. And we have a carrier pigeon service. That's the way, that's the way it goes. Anyway, so uh, Imitation Games at number two. Just mm-hmm. a, a few bits and pieces on that. Uh, Chris Rogers, surprisingly, Imitation Game overcame the problem of Cumberbatch overexposure with a unique and layered performance. Yes, the musical score is overdone. Yes, some of the dialogue is a little right, but there's so much good stuff that you forget your quibbles and get drawn in. The film succeeds in portraying the importance of Turing, the unfairness of his treatment and the need for acceptance brilliantly. Also, why has no one mentioned how great Rory Kinnear is, despite his tiny amount of screen time? Yeah, no, he is very good. Why haven't you mentioned that? Um, I'm sorry, it was an oversight. Hold the front page. And uh, good afternoon to Mrs. Eileen Bass. Right. Hello, gentlemen. I'm a female pipe smoker of 27 years. We are a rare species. One keep, down. Keep up the good work. Very good. One down, nine to go. So and it, before you owe me uh, a pipe. A, a pipe. It's not. So Martina in Edmonton. For me, beep. Mrs. Eileen Bass. Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, this is good. This is from uh, Guy Rowland. If Interstellar had one scene of pure cinema, the already celebrated truck-leaving-slash-rocket-launching moment, the imitation game gives us two hours of the golden stuff. Pause for Mark to say, hold on. Hold on. Whilst not being anything like as flashy or hyped as Nolan's space romp, it fortunately shares none of that film's oft-overlooked weaknesses. The imitation game relies on more tried and tested tricks such as 
oh, I don't know, acting, direction and especially screenwriting to go beyond genre conventions into something altogether more involving and, to these eyes at least, satisfying. Gripping from start to finish, the film earns its usual honest tears by granting much humour along the way, easily passing the six laughs test, even though you'd never call it a comedy. Yeah. Bags of popcorn excitement amid the unlikely wooden huts, wires and dials of Bletchley Park. It has a distinctly unobvious structure that appears seamless and a perfectly judged sense of pace, yet it never lets its desire to entertain trivialise the deadly serious themes that lie at the heart of this extraordinary story and extraordinary man in the shape of Alan Turing. I, I mean, I generally I agree with that. I, 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 as I said, I like the film. I've been surprised that... I like the film very much. I've been surprised that some people have been uh, quite harsh about it. It's interesting that our listeners' emails, at least the ones that you've read out, seem to be pretty pretty solidly positive don't they we haven't we yep. you know that's so yeah i mean I, I i like the film i'm not entirely sure why people have been why some when i say people why some critics have been sniffy about it in the way that they have uh, the number one movie is interstellar which i you know it's funny enough we, we were just talking about this before we came on air with somebody and they said what did you think and i said well you know we both thought the same thing there are there, there are definite flaws and there are things that make you go what but there is enough in there that is breathtaking and that reminds you of the power of cinema. I did an on stage uh, last night with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, whose uh, new film Inherent Vice is coming out, and he sh shot the film on 35, and he's a great sort of champion of film. And uh, I was saying you know, you, this whole thing when Kodak nearly stopped making uh, film j just recently, and a group of um, American uh, director and not just American directors got together to persuade the Hollywood studios to invest money in buying 35 mil stock. And he said, well, really, the person behind all of that is Chris Nolan. If it hadn't been for Chris Nolan, this wouldn't have happened. And uh, I think, you know, I saw, I saw Interstellar in the 70mm IMAX. I think it, is, it, is, it, it does matter what format you see it in. Um, I thought the 70mm IMAX was really, really quite breathtaking. There were moments of what I would think of as pure cinema in there. Uh, there's been an, an awful lot of uh, fussing as well about the dialogue. And to, to, right down to the point that Chris Nolan has had to be quoted in the press as saying, you're not meant to be able to hear all of it. There are moments in which the dialogue is meant to be drowned out by the sound effects. That's how I mixed it. OK, and that was the answer. Uh, Andrea has just sent an email asking me, where, where do you, sta where, where do you oh, stand sorry. about the sound? And, that's, and you just answered, no, it's okay, fine. fine. You, you, you anticipated it. But, I mean, there, there is a question Thank about you. whether or not the different formats have a different sound mix, whether if you see it... Because so, if you remember when uh, Dark Knight Rises came out, people were saying that it, you couldn't hear, you couldn't understand Tom Hardy in the IMAX mix, but you could understand him in the Digi mix. So I've only seen it in the IMAX 70 mix, and I... I didn't think for one minute I'm struggling to hear this dialogue. Mick Jagger coming very shortly. Just some thoughts on Interstellar then. Stephen Chaldon in Surrey. I've been looking forward to this movie for under a year now. Went to see it in my local Everyman in Oxted. I marvelled at the vast planet set pieces with the tiny spaceship orbiting. Got a lump in my throat at the love story between the father and daughter. Held on to my armrests at the gargantuan soundtrack linking Earth and space. However, I did think the robot thingy looked like it was made for about a tenner. I found the Michael... <laughs> I, can, I can just guarantee you that robot thingy wasn't made for about a I found the Michael Caine piece a bit like a lunchtime TV drama. I also wish the film had finished 15 minutes before the end, leaving us to make up our own mind about the ending. Thank you. I agree. All I agree. in all, I loved it, found it a wonderful film and one that I would gladly see tomorrow and the next week. Yeah. Um, this from Farah, who says, Thus far, I've only heard glowing reviews for Interstellar on your show. If this email were about me, then you'd get another. I wouldn't that be old hat. However, this email is not about me. It's about my fiancé, Ian. Okay. At the screening, I could tell he was bored. You can always tell if the person with you is completely bored. How? By just... Well, 
during each of what I, what I deemed to be the most tense, action-packed sequences, I was distracted by him reaching over to help himself to our home-baked 93% co-compliant cookies. Seven percent cocoa plants lost because they're a little bit overweight, harder than they should have been. His first comment: seventy percent of the time, it works all the time. That doesn't even make sense. His first comment when it ended was, "That was dull," and proceeded to rate it one star out of five because apparently you can't give a film no stars. My analysis is that he was expecting a film about space, which, as you have quite rightly pointed out. It wasn't. Space was just window dressing for a much more introspective story about time, survival and sacrifice. I'd say this was wondrous. He'd say it was ponderous. I like that. That's, yes. a, that's a nice... What, a nice what? I, I say it was wondrous, he said it was ponderous. I just It's a nicely constructed sentence that I admire. Thank you for that. What do you mean, what? Oh, OK, just checking. Yeah. Uh, an anonymous email. I would like to give my thoughts on Interstellar. I'm a single dad who has had to fight an ex-wife and her family to keep in touch with my daughter. I watched the film last night through floods of tears. It moved me tremendously. The metaphor of being so far from the object of my paternal love and the inability to be able to communicate with her resonated me resonated with me greatly. Yes, the film was set in space, but for me the film was really about separation and certainly not about spies or sharks. There you go, mm-hmm. see, regular. Yeah. I have often felt that I am in another galaxy from my little girl with no communication or ability to traverse the distance. The difficulties, the treacherousness, the hopelessness. It was a perfect cinematic representation of the struggle that I and many other parents have endured post-separation. Please keep my name anonymous. Seriously, last year we had a, last week we had an email from someone who... Felt that the movie was all really spoke to their uh, bereavement. Yes, yes. Uh, and clearly, separation is going to, you know, people will react to this in different ways, but I wonder if this anonymous email is going to speak for a number of people. Well, I mean, I would also refer it back to the comparison that I made um, earlier, which is that it, it, it's, it is very, very similar in its theme, in its central theme, to Contact, which, of course, is about Jodie Foster's character who is separated from the father that she's lost and all the gazing out into, into the stars and listening for, you know, order in the chaos is sort of seen as, you know, as her attempting to remake that bond. I do think there is a very strong comparison between... And this is not a plot spoiler. This is a, this is a thematic comparison between Contact and Interstellar. And I think it is possible to say of both of them that if they work well, and I think they both do, I think it's even arguable that Contact is a, you know, is a more coherent film. Um, they work because around all the other stuff... I mean, Robert Zemeckis was an incredible technician, knew how to do spectacular cinema, but they are basically about a relationship between a parent and a child. And everything else comes from that. You can get in touch with the programme, 85058. You email mail at bbc.co.uk. Now it's guest time. We're going to be speaking to Mick Jagger in just a moment. He is the producer of the new James Brown biopic, which is called Get On Up. You'll hear from Mick in just a moment. First of all, here's a bit from the movie. What the hell is this, Ralph? Where is the rest of the song? Right there. Right there? What are you talking about? Right there. He keeps hollering the one word over and over again. Please, please, please what? Please pay my rent? What does he want? Listen, Mr. Nathan, this song is... I don't hear any song here, Ralph. A song has verses. You know what I mean? A song has a snappy chorus. Something. Where is the song? Give me the song, Ralph. It's not about the song. 
That's a clip from Get On Up. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its producers, Mick Jagger. Hello, Mick. How are you doing? Sorry? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Does this, does this film start with you? What do you mean start with is this, me? Well, explain how you how oh, you your mean, involvement how did in the, the movie. How has the movie come about? Yes. Well, um, yeah, well, in a way it does, because though it didn't really start with me, it was there was a, there was a script written some 10 years ago by the Butterworth brothers who are famous English they did they did Jerusalem which was a quite well-known play amongst other things they've done but that was very famous and they wrote it as a kind of labor of love and um the film it 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 was they tried to get the film off the ground in in Hollywood and it for various reasons that I won't bore you with it it didn't like a lot of things like this you know lots of projects don't happen Mm. and so the script gathered dust and so on and um then a friend of mine came to me and said you know, I've just acquired the rights for all of James Brown's music. And um, he also, we worked together on other projects, and he's a huge James Brown fan, this guy. He's called Peter Afton, and he worked on the movie as well. And he said, would you make um, a documentary on, on James Brown? Because I'd just finished producing the documentary The Crossfire Hurricane for the Stones. And so he said, well, I really like that. So would you do a James Brown documentary? And I, I woke up the next day and said, let's do a feature. Um and of course, there was this script which I didn't know anything about. So I, normally, these scripts are rubbish. You've been sitting. There's, there's usually a reason they sat there for ten years. And um, so I actually I was really pleasantly surprised. And I met up with the Butterworths in London, and then I went back to um, Brian Grazer, who'd had this earlier involvement in Imagine Films, and I suggested that we partner up and see if we could get, get this movie off the ground. And it was a lot of you know, turning and froing between different studios that owned, you know, certain rights. And eventually we financed it for the Universal. Chadwick Boseman, who plays James Brown, mm-hmm. uh, an extraordinary performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very good. Find, I mean, clearly finding the guy who can be James Brown yeah, was, was going to be a tough ask. Yeah. Everyone said to me, oh, well, who on earth is going to do that? Exactly. You know, that, that's what everyone said. I mean, but, you know, movies are movies. I mean, you know, we... You, 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 there's always going to be someone that can do a great job or you are going to create a great job through movie magic, one, one or the other. And, you know, you, we could have gone to someone that was from Broadway, for instance, who was a great performer. You know, that, I mean, there are people that can dance. I mean, and James Brown was a great dancer and performer. We could have gone to a performer who was also an actor. We went to an actor who wasn't a performer and asked him to, to perform. And... Um, so he had a really quick learning curve, you know, on on um, having to become a performer because he, he he wasn't a performer. He didn't do Broadway. He hadn't done anything. He'd never been on stage as a singer. Well, why why was he asked then? Well, there's several reasons. One, he's a very very good actor. Uh, secondly, he'd had a, a big success in America in a movie called Forty Two, which wasn't really released in Europe because first of all, it's about baseball, which is like not really a big thing in Europe. And I'm not saying it wasn't released, but it certainly wasn't popular. But in America, this movie was a big movie. So he was sort of popular off the back of that, as well as being a very, very talented actor. And studios like success. So, you know, they said, well, yeah, Chad Bosman's, you know, he just had great success with with 42. So, and then he tested for it and did really well. And he has to have... The signature moves. He has to. Yeah, that's uh, not the only thing he's got to do. No, you know, but, but to be you... honest, I mean, yes, he's a fantastic in the performance thing. Yeah, I mean, he had to work really hard on that. It wasn't a dancer, 
I put them together with this choreographer that I've worked with called AJ. Um, You know, at the beginning, you know, AJ, and we didn't have much time, you know, we had two months to prepare everything. So, you know, it it was like, Chad had to really work hours and hours with AJ. And, you know, AJ's a fantastic guy, and at the beginning, you know, I'm sure it was tough for Chad to try and do this, but he put the hours in, he put in, in, you know, tough you know because he had to prepare for the other part of the role because yeah that the to become the concert you know james brown is really difficult he's got all these other things to do mm. he has to play the adolescent james brown he has to play the 62 year old from 16 brown. to 62 yeah, it's, exactly. so it's, it's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of prep and we really needed more time to be honest and would but i mean in the end it didn't matter because it, it all got done and it, within the boundaries that we set ourselves um Will people be going to this movie thinking they want to hear James Brown's voice or will they be expecting to hear Chad sound like... Was that ever a discussion? Because Marion Cotillard... What do you Cot- mean singing? Yes. I mean, well, it's James it? Brown singing in yes. the soundtrack. It is. But was there ever a discussion? So Whacking Phoenix sang the Johnny Cash songs himself in that Yeah, biopic. that's true. Um, was that ever Which a, was a great issue? movie, and he did really well. But I think that it's a big, that was a big ask to ask him to dance like James Brown and sing as good as James And, and we always, I always imagined that we were going to use the, the original soundtracks. Uh, of, I mean, there are moments where Chad actually does sing in a few scenes, but they're not on stage, so to speak. So, no, we're always going to use the, the original tracks and original voice. And how on earth do you pick the songs because <laughs> the thing is we, you come out of the movie and you, I kind of thought I think I've heard everything that I was expecting to hear it yeah. sounded better than I ever thought it was going to yeah. I mean but, but where do you even start you know well yeah well you start you start there's two things for me you know uh, there's there's first you want to pick the, your favourites <laughs> the best ones you know and then, you know to some extent the well known ones you don't go for only obscures if you, you know so there was well-known songs from different periods, though. Having said that, of course, when we start, you know, the early, you got the try me, you got the please, please, um, and also they when they have to fit into the um, into the story, they have to fit into the narrative. It's a bit like a, a musical theatre, you know. They have to somehow they have to move along with the action too. So, um, so you know, also we're slightly dictated by the availability of some, you know, the. The technical quality of some of the uh, some of the remaining recordings, you know, we we messed around with, you know, some of the live things we we picked because they were the best sounds, and we did, you know, we did some remixing and we did a little bit of sweetening and so on. Not that you'd really really notice, but to make it really sound good, a really good oral experience in the when the with an AU oral, yeah, um, yeah. in the in the in the in the in the theatre, you know. I think yeah, it was almost as much you could tell in this uh, uh, in the screening, which is uh, full of critics. They almost got up and danced, you know, a couple that's, of times. That's very good. Do you do you remember the first time that you ever heard James Brown on the radio or got one of his records? I, I think I had the first single I had was called "Think," and then uh, I had "Please, Please, Please," and then we had um, the um, album. We had the Live at the Apollo album. That was like that was like the when you really heard you know, what, what it was like to be at a show of James Brown because that was the big thing. And his insistence in the, which you see in the movie, his insistence on putting out a live recording. Yeah, which, you see all uh, that. Which many know. of the executives are saying, no, no, yeah, no, they, they don't sell. Well, well they, they were right. They don't, they don't sell, except in this case, they really <laughs> did. <laughs> and it was a fantastic result uh, for him. And, uh, and, 
and you know that record was a huge record and it, it stayed on the charts forever and you know it was very popular in, in Britain and it, it was popular everywhere it was an exceptional um exceptional record and you know and I knew it backwards and so when I went to actually see James Brown for the first time in 1964 that I mean I'd already sort of imagined it in my head yeah. the whole record and all the rap and it was very similar I mean when the, you know, the intro the what what James did and so on was very similar to the record and of course there is and there's a scene in the movie with the Rolling Stones being on the same yeah. uh, TV show in 1964 was, and it was James, a movie actually but yeah, yeah and, and James Bryant's kind of, he puts in a blistering performance yeah, yeah. in the movie it's because he's crossed that you're head of the you're, you're top of the I think it would have put a blistering performance in anyway but yeah, I didn't. I don't. I think it's a lot. It's a very, it's a good dr- drama, but yes. I mean, I'm not sure how annoyed he really was. There's that photograph of me, him and me talking. We look very affable. Um, my my other favorite, one of the favorite bits in, uh, in the movie is you see. I think it's like he's when he's ten or eleven, and yeah. he wanders into a kind of crazy gospel Pentecostal yeah. service, and the preacher is putting in like a barnstorming yeah. show. And there's that moment where it cuts back to the young James Brown. He's thinking, okay, yeah, I can do this, yeah. I want to do this too, you know. Yeah, he so yeah because the inspiration for a lot of his work is from the church, like it's like Little Richard, like a lot of people, Sam Cooke and so. On. So the inspiration for for being, you know, a, a singer like that or that kind of music, and and to some extent that kind of audience participation and the sign to and throwing and call and response and all those things comes from the church. Do you think? Do you think if there'd been a church like that when you were 10 years old in Dartford and you'd wandered in, do you think... I don't suppose there was anything that was well, remotely... There wasn't, no. Was so I think it's like a really that. theoretical question. No. <laughs> Ever been to a service like that? I mean, that's an astonishing... Yeah, of course. That's of course an I have, yeah. astonishing show that he Yeah, I've in. been. Yeah. And, and the, were the moves there? Were the moves on stage still? In the church? Yeah, from the preacher. Yeah, they, yeah the singing was... I don't remember quite seeing people move quite like that, but... <laughs> It was astonishing. Um, uh, what's next for you, Mick, in terms of uh, film production? Do you because uh, uh, I know there's a documentary also, which is which is yeah. Still, I, mean, still I have a documentary around. which is um, directed by Alex Gibney on James Brown, which is my original promise to my. So that's still happening. <laughs> oh yeah, it's finished, and it's coming out in America in the late autumn. I don't know, and I think it's coming out in England probably in the autumn as well. And that, it concentrates very much on the way that James Brown evolved as a musician, and then it. That's the first half of it, and then it then it then it's very much the social upheaval and his involvement in the civil rights movement. So it's kind of, but it's a really, you know, Alex Gibney is one of the premier kind of documentary directors, and he's done an amazing job. But the, uh, so you, that's a, it's a kind of companion piece, if yeah. you will. Mick Jagger, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Uh, Mick Jagger uh, talking about Get On Up, the new James Brown a movie, of which he is uh, the producer and. The most distracting thing for me, just listening back um, to the interview, which I always found an unsatisfactory experience anyway, but it was slightly off-put by the fact that Mark, adding to his extraordinary repertoire <laughs> of uncanny impressions, was doing Mick Jagger. No, but the funny thing is that Mick Jagger does sound like Phil Cornwell's impression of him. And it was a bit when, you know, when he suddenly he said, uh, he said, yeah, that is completely horrible. <laughs> Sorry, no, but, I, well, I'm sorry as well because that was more that was Danny Dyer. No, I know, I know. I'm so, I'm, I, I'm sad that you didn't ask me about what he thought of the portrayal of him in Stoned, uh, the um, uh, the film directed by Steve Woolley. And, and it also reminded well, me. I'm ever so sorry about that. It must have that question just just dropped just off the end. And you didn't ask me about the Ruttles either. 
No, what should I have done there? Well, because he, he, he plays himself in The Ruttles. He's got a fantastic cameo in The Ruttles as Mick Jagger, as the person who, you know... Who, Which of those questions should I have dropped to include your incisive Ruttles You should have question? said to him, um, do you think The Ruttles will ever get back together again? Which would have given him the chance to go, I hope not. Never mind. OK, I'll make a note of that. So next time, um, and we could, of course, discuss Martin Scorsese and everything else, but for some reason... It didn't quite happen like that. So you'll hear Mark's review of Get On Up in just a few moments' time after the new sport traveller weather. However, coming up in our final hour, reviews of these films. Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, My Old Lady, The Homesman, Winter Sleep, What We Do in the Shadows and more. Your contributions to mayo at bbc.co.uk or you can text 85058. This is Five Live. Uh, good afternoon, and in this hour we're going to do some Mockingjay correspondence and Mark's review coming up in just a moment. Also what he thought of uh, Get On Up, the new James Brown biopic. You just heard uh, Mick Jagger talking about that. We've only got one uh, woman who smokes a pipe while uh, listening to the programme. One in... Day um, one. One in Canada. Day one. Uh, and one no, we're in the two. UK. Two, that's two now. There's one new one and one... Yeah, ten in total, that's two. Andrea Carnivali, the only advantage of being stuck at home with a nasty flu while shivering with fever is being able to follow the show live with the added bonus of the video feed. However, I'm slightly distracted... Not much of a bonus. ...by strange details. Why is Simon's microphone facing up and Mark's microphone facing down? Is that the reason for Mark sounding more high-pitched? It's the other way round. Your microphone is facing down and my microphone is facing up. You spotted that. I have spotted that. Andrea is clearly sicker than he thinks. Is he watching in Australia? Who knows? Um, Herbert Lee, uh, dear drum and stand-up bass. I've always... This is about movies with no plot. Yes, I've always argued that Citizen Kane has no plot. Yes, there's the Rosebud denouement at the end, but apart from that, it's just stuff. No memorable scenes, <laughs> no memorable quotes. That's Citizen Kane. That's just stuff. Maybe I'm a Philistine. It's Lee. <laughs> it's Lee Herbert, not Herbert Lee, by the way. Yeah. Nigel in Edinburgh. One of my favourite films has no plot. It's, plot. it's Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Yeah. This is going to appear on anyone's list of all-time greats, but I've always loved the feeling of being carried along on a rather untidy end-of-term party in middle yeah, America I somewhere like in the song. 70s. Nothing much happens, nothing is resolved, and there are fewer twists than a pack of dried spaghetti. The soundtrack is great, and there are hardly any famous people in it. And so much the better. Uh, anyway, that's all fine. Thank you very much, indeed. So, get on up. So, we've talked about uh, talked to Mick Jagger. He's explained uh, about how it came about. He's explained his involvement. But this is what Mark thinks. I mean, I liked it. I think the Chadwick Boseman's uh, central performance is really terrific. And, uh, and actually, that's pretty much the glue that holds the whole thing together. I mean, what's happened is that you've got a script which filters, um, you know, a number of riffs that you would recognise from things like, um, you know, uh, Jersey Boys and Ray and Buddy Holly Story to some extent. And it filters them to this kind of um, crazy paved mosaic script that uh, Jez and John Henry Butterworth have put together. Um, obviously, as a result of that, there's, a, there's an amount of glossing over certain things, uh, not least the fact that there's there's there's... There's one scene in it in which it, it in which it sort of directly refers to domestic violence. And then it kind of moves on because basically it's what it is. It's a, it's a celebration and it sees itself very much as that. It's kind of the way the movie is sold to you is almost as if it's James Brown telling you his own story. And so it is it is celebratory. The reason it gets away with those sort of things is because at the heart of it you have this performance by Chadwick Boseman who's completely charismatic and uh, you know and, and really enchanting on stage. And it's interesting when you're talking to Mick Jagger about you know we are listening to um, to him singing or are we listening to, to James Brown? He said, no, obviously it's, that's James Brown's voice. And a lot of the time in the past, I've been very bothered in biopics when you when you, you lose the, the sound of the performer and they start miming something. I mean, I was thinking, for example, of the Edith Piaf biopic, um, which re that really bothered me. And one of the reasons why I like 
walk the line so much, which you referred to, you know, Joaquin Phoenix doing his own film. But actually, in this, because the performance is so physical, I didn't feel it was a great big jarring disconnect between the singing voice and the speaking voice. Actually, I felt that the two things kind of worked well together. I felt like it was like one coherent character. Also, you get the whole thing with Bobby Bird sort of as this kind of providing this Greek chorus commentary on the, you know, on the rise to fame of uh, James Brown, realising that actually we're going to have to take some stage because he is, you know, it's James Brown, is the guy at the front and he is the, you know, the godfather of soul and the rest of it. And I, so I thought the whole thing bounced along at a fair old pace. It's driven by a love of the music. As I said, it is clearly a celebration. I mean, it's, it's absolutely a celebration. And... And it works because it's got this great big sort of, you know, pounding central performance, which does give you a sense of the charisma. And it's a very, I mean, it's very, very hard task to say to somebody, go out there and do a convincing impression. Or, I mean, not just an impression, do a convincing performance of what it is that James Brown would do on stage. And I think the movie managed to do it. I think if it had a, weak, if it had a weaker central performance the flaws that the film may have would be much more glaring. But the fact that it doesn't, the fact that actually that central performance is so terrific, carries it through. Yes, and, and I entirely agree about who's doing the vocals because if you go... It may well be that you're slightly concerned that having seen Postman Pat voiced by Stephen Mangan, but then when he opens its mouth, his, it's Ronan Keating. Yeah. You might think, are we going to have a Postman Pat Ronan Keating moment? To which the answer is, no, you don't. Maybe I was the only one that thought that. Yeah, no, and you don't have that. And that's a, that, I think, is a real triumph, the fact that you don't have it. The fact that what you you don't get the Ronan Keating moment. We should now refer to this forever. It won't anymore be the Edith Piaf moment. It will be the Ronan Keating moment. Uh, OK. You, and what did you think? Because you, you didn't... I thought it was terrific. No, I thought it was... A, it is astonishing how one person can play this character from 16 to 60, 62, even, you know, clearly... They're acting. That's what they do. You wouldn't have thought anyone could have inhabited the character like that, but it's, it's an extraordinary performance. Um, this from Michael Brooks. As a well-rounded musical biopic, Get On Up works on several levels but fails equally on others. Brown himself is played with real style and panache by Chadwick Boseman, skilled dancer. He really is. A depth performer. Uh, there are entertaining cameo appearances from the likes of Mick Jagger and Burger Flippin' uh, Little Richard. There are flaws. The structure is far too shapeless, with some events jumbled around out of sequence quite needlessly. And I'm which, okay, so I'm sorry, carry which on. Which, after a while, has a tendency to jar. In trying to squeeze Brown's life into 139 minutes, there are rafts of key sequences that are either paid casual lip service to or otherwise left out entirely. As a result of the film's accelerated pace... It casts, intentionally or not, a very sympathetic gloss over Brown's unavoidably complex character. His well-attested to musical genius is counterweighted by his self-serving narcissism, his drug abuse and his mistreatment of bandmates and partners. Yes. To its credit, Get On Up doesn't shy away entirely from these complexities, yet with the fast pace and vaulting ambition to turn the film into a bloated Scorsese-like epic, it is unable to address them comprehensively enough to feel like it's really getting under the skin uh, of Brown as a character, whilst never reaching the heights of the recent musical biopics like Control or Behind the Candelabra, Get On Up is an entertaining, if frustratingly flawed portrayal of the difficult and electrifying godfather of soul. Did you find it fl- frust- frustratingly flawed? No, I didn't. I, in- I, enjoy- I, mean, I-, I-, I take the criticism that clearly it's not uh, spending any time at all, really, uh, on the-, the bad stuff. It is, as you said, a celebration of... 
uh, James Brown without completely ignoring the bad stuff. Yeah, and I mean, you certainly... It, and it starts with him being a gun-toting crazy guy. Yeah, the, the, the opening sequence, which is him complaining about who's been using his loo, yes. is, is a very unusual place. So it's not a whitewash. It's not saying he's no. a straightforward guy, but I, I think it's enormously fun. And you will come out of it and buy the CD or download the music immediately because you'll check how much James Brown you've got in your collection. However, at a quarter past three, it's time to talk Hunger Games Part 3, or as it's known... Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, as opposed to Hunger Games Mockingjay. Okay, so I think the best way of describing this is if you think of the first Hunger Games as basically being a kind of a a rerun of Battle Royale, which it is. And it's funny, I remember when you read the book of Hunger Games, you made that comparison. You said to me, you know, what what we were talking about that. You said, what is that movie that you talked about that seems like a very, very children killing children? Exactly. And then the second uh, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, I think is very, you know, owes a great debt to um, to Rollerball, and because it's much more to do with how, what the game is about, what purpose the game serves, and in that way, this part three, part one, is kind of comparable to broadcast news or network, in as much as it's not a gladiatorial sport because we're not in the arena. It's about the making and marketing of a revolution and the way in which television and broadcasting is used to manipulate uh, world events. Uh, so at the very big, you know, at the end of the last film, of course, what happens is Katniss Everdeen is hoiked out of the games arena by the rebel forces. She is now basically told that what they need her to do is they need her to be the symbol of the revolution. She needs to be the Mockingjay. Um, she demands that they get back Peter. And, and again, once again, sort of the, one of the weaker elements of the story is that three-way love triangle, although that's partly because the story isn't really about that. In fact, what's happened to Peter is that Peter is now being held by the capital, where he is used for their own propaganda video. So on the one hand, you have Katniss being dressed up in sort of combat sheet black and told to act like Joan of Arc so they can make propaganda videos, or propos, as they call them. On the other hand, you have the capital doing these interviews with Peter as a sort of you know, as a countermeasure. Here's a clip. There has been rampant speculation about what really happened in the quarter quell. And here, to shed a little light on the subject for us, is a very special guest. Please welcome Mr. Peter Malark. Peter, a lot of people feel as though they are in the dark. Yeah, yeah, I know how they feel. <laughs> now, so set the stage for us. Talk us through what really happened on that final and controversial night? Well, first off, you have to you have to understand that when you're in the games, you only get one wish. It's very costly. You're alive. So basically, here they and what you know a lot of Jennifer in that. No, no, I know, because what I was saying was that actually what that clip was was a clip of him being used for their propaganda mm-hmm. videos. I mean, I, I think what's interesting about that clip is actually it does pretty much encapsulate what it is that this film is about, as opposed to the other ones which have had this kind of gladiatorial uh, central arena. Actually, you know, some people said that the first two films are sort of repeating that, but I think they're not because I think they're changing the they're changing the the way in which those gladiatorial games look. The third one is definitely, I mean, in, in many ways, it's the most overtly political. It is the one about how all of this comes down to a media war. So she is brought back to uh, the rebel forces. She is told by uh, Julianne uh, Moore's character that this is what she has to do and she has to become the Mockingjay. She has to help the, the districts rise up. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character uh, is the person who's, you know, who's behind all this, the sort of, you know, the games maker turned kingmaker who's involved in designing. It's all about a media war. Now, there are obviously 
problems dramatically in that it, it is less dramatically even than the previous instalments. I think there's there's no question about that. However. Because I mean, because you haven't got the you know the, the gladiator games, what you have to have is a couple of raids and some action sequences which sort of fill that gap. But what you've largely got in this is something which is much more kind of overtly a discussion about the televise the televising of a conflict and the way in which it's all to do with supremacy of the airwaves and the way in which it's all to do with the marketing and the creation of an idea. Because really, what the film is about is about people taking symbols and using them to convince people that their argument is right. There are also very, very explicit parallels being drawn between Donald Sutherland's President Snow and between Julianne Moore. The rebel leader is using Katniss Everdeen in the same way that uh, President Snow has used everyone in order to... So it's all about propaganda. Um, it's not entirely successful in as much as th- that becomes a slightly more difficult dramatic sell because it doesn't have the clear you know, game structure. But what it does have is another terrific performance... I mean, I you know I think Jennifer Lawrence is really good. She's really she has really made this role her own, and despite the fact that you still have that sort of slightly flawed love triangle thing, which doesn't quite work, it's what it's a kind of credit to her that it's that's never been a major flaw of the series. That it's not you're not really interested in that. You believe in her and you believe in her journey and you believe in in her point of view. I think that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is terrific. This is the film in which he really really comes into his own, in which you you do you know you do see that character's kind of fully rounded. I think it's got a it retains its very sparky attitude toward authority, which is that it's, it's you know it is essentially anti-authority. Have you read all all of the books? No, I only read the first. Okay, fine. Um, and was actually put off. Yeah, the, because the, the other two books because because the, 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 it is yeah. it has been the case for many people that they have said you know that they they kind of lost. Lo- and I understand why because it, what it doesn't have is the clear dramatic arc of a game setup in which you go in this and then the games take place and you come out the other end of it. It doesn't have that. But what it does have is, as I said, if the first one is battle royale and the second one is rollerball, this is basically broadcast news. And I think that's interesting. I mean, we, we it we remains to be seen how they manage to get through the second part of it because it's you know it's a tougher sell. And I'm not entirely convinced that dividing the last book into two is the best thing to have been done. That wasn't done, you know, entirely for pragmatic, you know, economic reasons. But I was actually more impressed by this than I thought I was going to be. Uh, Jacob Varghese. So there's absolutely a stack of emails uh, on this. Loads of people seen it already. Jacob Varghese uh, in Melbourne. A commoner, but not colonial. Just so you know, Australia has been fully independent since 1986 or 1943 or 1931, depending on your preferred constitutional theory. OK. Listen, Jacob, That's fine, fine, you're good, independent you. when we say you're independent, OK? Yeah. So, uh, dear President Snow and President Coyne, as a fan of the first two Hunger Games films, I dragged my wife to see Mockingjay Part 1 and we had a great night out at the movies. Oh, good. I've heard a lot of complaints that this is only half a movie. It is, but who cares? This is a modern serial. On TV, we can cope with a narrative that requires commitment and attention over years. Consider Game of Thrones. Why not in cinema too? The decision to split the novel into two films may well have been driven by economic concerns, but the filmmakers have used the extra time to develop their characters, which has become rare in action blockbusters. Mockingjay 1 is a fun, engaging action film that tackles some very serious and interesting issues about the use and misuse of power and propaganda. Hints that the rebellion also has a dark side take the film further than standard goodies versus baddies fair. 
Peter Craig and Danny Strong have done a great job in keeping the exposition and schmaltz to a minimum. In lesser hands, it could have been an overwrought melodrama like Twilight. Similarly, the first-rate cast, Hoffman, Moore, Wright and, of course, Lawrence, elevate this film beyond the standard blockbuster. Uh, Rebecca Pierce in Sao Paulo. Uh, I went to see Mockingjay Part 1 yesterday with a mixture of both excitement and trepidation. Uh, Mockingjay is, in my opinion, the least well-written of the three Hunger Games yeah, novels. Many people do think that. Yep, and I didn't think splitting it into two would do it any favours. However, However, the casting announcements of Julianne Moore and Natalie Dormer, among others, had me thinking that perhaps the screenwriters were planning on giving some of the background characters more prominence to expand the story. The film ultimately does stick very close to the first half of the novel, and a lot of the acting talent seemed wasted to me as they weren't given very much to do, although I do think Jennifer Lawrence continues to deli- deliver an excellent performance as Katniss. I think the problem with splitting books into two films is that you often end up with one film where there's not a lot happening. Uh, despite some reservations, I did enjoy Mockingjay Part 1. Overall, found it its exploration of how propaganda is used in war very well, interesting. Well, there we go. And, and that, that, in a way, even with the reservations, I think I, think I feel very similar. I mean, I, I agree there are... You know there are dramatic flaws, which are kind of by by, by nature of d- dividing the book into two. But that said, I I like the film about propaganda. You know, I like that because I think that's interesting. Emily Goddard is sixteen. On Wednesday evening, me and my, that's what she tells us. Uh, me and my friends visited our local cinema for the Hunger Games marathon for weeks because people have been showing one and two and then yeah, showing yeah, three yeah. on the back of that. For weeks prior to this event, I was buzzing, but on the night I became increasingly concerned that seven hours of this might be just too much and my eyes might fail me. How wrong I was. The first two films flew by and I remembered why I loved them so much. The third film was amazing. Action-packed, funny in places, took just the right amount from the books. In fact, me and my friend decided that the films are superior to the books. I'm so glad they brought Effie in as she is just a sass queen. Uh, <laughs> you didn't tell me that. No, I didn't know. I defiantly wanted... I definitely... I defiantly or I definitely... Well, actually, it's defiantly. Defiantly, I defiantly. Are you going gonna to correct it and send it back? Actually, she, Emily signs it okay. and says... Uh, if this is a read, thank you for reading. I'm a new list. I've been catching up on the old podcast where Mark has criticised listeners' wording of letters. If I've made any mistakes, <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, I okay. definitely want to go and see it again. Would recommend it to most, but I think it's one of the best teen action films out there. Uh, thank you, Emily. Jordan Bowers in Southport. Being a pleasantly surprised fan of Hunger Games 1 and 2, caught a screening of the latest instalment this morning. It's either incredibly cynical of me or of the production company, but Mockingjay can only be two films for monetary reasons. Dramatically, it makes no sense. Part 1 has its moments, and it continues to impress me that in what is essentially a teen film, there are great themes intellectually put forward. The problem with the film lies in the lack of action, and coming out of the film, I'm struggling to think of anything really progressive that actually happened. The film was basically two hours of set-up. I'm assuming, similar to the final Harry Potter films, there was setting up for an exhilarating part two after the not-so-great part one. Remember Harry Potter 7 part one? Harry and the incredibly monotonous camping holiday. (laughs) But given this is the Hunger Games... Harry on camping, as we call it. Very good. Yeah. Well, is I think I, I thought it? I, I think I, I thought that was your joke. Harry, oh, yes, said Harry. Okay, it was you. That's right. Being funny. That's right. It was. It was definitely Harry on camping. Mine. Adam Smith. Hunger Games. Mockingjay. Part one. Let me say this. Filler. 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 Okay. I loved the first two films, and despite perhaps not being their target audience, I'm 32. I couldn't wait to go and see Mockingjay. I wasn't disappointed as such, as there's no question this film has plenty of excellent moments. 
taking out that bit, taking out that bit, taking out that bit. And Jennifer Lawrence gave another barnstorming performance as Katniss. Has there been another franchise that has been so completely led by one of the finest actors of our generation? And again, I think that's another reason why I forgive it for whatever dramatic flaws it has, is but because I think that her character is, is fascinating and interesting. For vast portions of the film, it was difficult to avoid the feelings that things were just being padded out. As was pointed out when the announcement came out that the film was being split into two, the final book is the least exciting of the trilogy. Why break it up even more? The Hunger Games had the opportunity to join Toy Story as one of the finest trilogies ever made, but instead we have a third and fourth film that is little more than some excellent moments surrounded by a filler. Plenty to admire in this film, not least the heartbreaking final appearance of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who had plenty of portentous lines and moments, but I couldn't help feeling a large sense of what if. Well, I mean, as I said, I, I, I appreciate and understand those, uh, you know, those, those reservations, but I still liked it because I still think that the central idea is interesting and that the central character is, uh, is fascinating. And I think that all the stuff with, uh, you know, with Peter being used you know, as a kind of prop by, by the capital government, I think that stuff is, is very affecting. And sure. as I said, I mean, I, it reminds me of films which I like very much, like broadcast news. And incidentally, that comparison with the Harry on camping thing, there is... You know, I was talking to Nigel Floyd about this, and he said, you know, the, in a way, he said his opinion was that he, he always liked the one before the last one, because the one before the last one is the one in which everything goes wrong. It's the one in which everything has to fall apart in order for the last one to work. And that's kind of true. I mean, I agree, it's less action-packed, necessarily less action-packed, and, and, and therefore less, you know, dramatically complete. George Dunn in Hull, when watching part one, uh, you, a part one, you know that you aren't getting the big battle at the end and throughout this film you have no real idea what the purpose of this two hours is other than to free up more time for the big battle coming next year <laughs> and more cynically to line some more pockets. The film is padded, baggy, lacks definite direction. Despite that, the characters and themes just about hold it together. Um, who's this? It's Daniel Cooper. I'm going to stop asking myself, myself questions, questions that Daniel you then Cooper. go on to answer, yeah. BSc paleo, Paleobiology and Evolution, current third year, BSc Nursing and Three Peaks Conqueror. Took eight years, not 24 hours. I spent a solid two weeks convincing the missus that I should treat her to the eye-watering spectacle that was sure to be interstellar, despite her lack of interest in anything too sciencey. However, on the day of my long-anticipated trip to see the latest Chris Nolan offering, I made the mistake of annoying her. Damn. Desperate to pacify her after my whoopsie. My whoopsie? My whoopsie. Not in the Frank Spencer way, I suspect, <laughs> for older listeners. I decided... <laughs> I decided... Look it up. I decided regrettably to surprise her by accidentally arriving at our local cinema on top of a shopping centre and accidentally buying her tickets to the showing of Mockingjay Part 1. Right. Luckily... I wasn't too disappointed. In fact, pleasantly surprised. There was a tension throughout the film that built as the pressure on the capital built, and Jennifer Lawrence carries herself through it brilliantly, despite her desperate vulnerability, obvious at times. Her acting has seen... Mm -hmm. There was... <laughs> just deleting redacted, spoilers. Redacted, redacted, yes. There was, somewhat surprisingly, a dark, brooding teenage film of the sparkly vampire and maze-running generation. Good comic relief at times caused considerably noisy laughter in the large auditorium. Uh, my only real grievance is the building towards the finale. <laughs> and now there is this more is than a year. Ace Radio is this. <laughs> Simon crossing out an email. It's almost exciting as a man on a computer. Yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah. Now there's a whole year before the kerfuffle really commences. And that is the line, Daniel, because that's what we need. To, that's what they should do for the for the big portentous voiceover. And now Mockingjay part two. The, the kerfuffle really, commences, really, really commences. Okay. This is the moment you've been waiting for. It's 3.37. This is Five Live. You can email the programme, mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058. You can watch the live stream. The podcast will be available at the end of the show. And you, you can, can see follow the, us on Snapchat as well. You can see the stuff. look of horror on Mark's face, as Simon pointed out, the number of listeners uh, rang. So what I actually should have said was, and we and hopefully we'll get the chance to do, Israel Horowitz's new film, My Old Lady. Thank you for the clarification, which we're coming to in just a moment. So, uh, TV movie of the week. Helen Palmer, Joe Jackson and Jane Lambert all say you're going to pick The Red Shoes. David Grice here. Has to be Red Shoes, so far ahead of its time. Saw it for the first time last year, was amazed by it. I think Mark will agree. Um, Oliver Goddard, all good choices, but I'm going for Room 237, which is on Film 4 at 25 past midnight on Saturday. Well, it's... Obviously <laughs> it's a done deal, time. isn't it? Although The Shining may not be my favourite Kubrick film, that would be Doctor Strangelove. It's still a brilliant piece of work. I find the multitude of weird and wonderful theories surrounding it fascinating and bonkers. Anthony Lines, possibly, yes, and Martin Chatterton, many more, saying Raging Bull makes Rocky look like a pantomime and late enough so we won't have to suffer any funny monster dubbing. Uh, Fiona <laughs> Winder, Jim Gleason, Robert Gue say you're going to choose monster. The Shooting Party. Uh, Robert says The Shooting Party, for me, haven't... Haven't seen it. But with this year being the centenary of the start of the Great War, it seems appropriate. Uh, Tony Stevenson think you're going to go for Wild Bill. A lot of people thinking Quatermass. But what is Mark's pick of TV movie of the week? Well, bearing in mind that I'm about to go to Belfast to introduce a 35mm screening of Matter of Life and Death, um, I think it would make a very good comparison to the companion piece to go for the Red Shoes, uh, pal, uh, Pressburger, on uh, BBC Two. Now, I, I'm so bad with 24-hour clocks. It is Saturday oh, the go. 22nd... 14.45, that's 2.45 in the afternoon, isn't it? Yes. On BBC Two. So that's tomorrow. Yes, fine. So that's why I'm going to go for Richard. But I also want to flag up, since I could, actually I was going to pass it over, but you said it in such a sneering way that I'm now going to flag it up, that there is showing on Film 4 in the middle of the night that Room 237, which is the film about... Which is a film about film studies gone mad. It is one of the... It's a film about how if you look at anything, particularly Kubrick film, for long enough, you can find absolutely everything in it. And... You know, an awful. There's a wonderful um, line in the Roger Ebert documentary that's out at the moment called "Life Itself," in which Roger Ebert uh, is is introducing one of these screenings, and he would do these talker screenings, and he said, at any point, somebody can shout "stop," and we'll hold the film, and we can, you know, look and talk about it. And he said, and every year, every year we do this, and every year we find something really new and brilliant. It's not there, but we find it anyway. Uh, Eight five zero five eight. Only two pipe smoker. Only two female pipe smokers. Still Martina in Edmonton and Mrs Eileen Bass. I suspect there won't be many others. Mark thinks there might be ten. We will find out. So, uh, yes, do you want to do the review of that movie, which you teed up so carefully and uh, deliciously before the So news? you want to mention, okay, say, My Old Lady. So this is uh, Israel Horowitz's uh, screen adaptation uh, of a play from a while ago, I think from uh, 2002. Story is Kevin Klein, who is a sort of depressive, uh, ageing depressive, ar- arrives in Paris in order to uh, inherit and liquidate um, uh, an apartment which has been left to him in a will, only to discover that the apartment comes with Maggie Smith, who is, it's been sold on a Viaget uh, contract, we don't know anything about this at all, but a Viaget contract uh, says that you, you sell the apartment, but it, you, 
it's called a, it's a complicated French thing. Basically, she has the right to live in the apartment until the end of her life, at which point the apartment belongs to the person to whom it was sold. So, essentially, complicated setup. Kevin Klein hasn't got the apartment. He's got the apartment with Maggie Smith in it. Here's a clip. Take this. You can stay here for a while until you know what you're doing. Thank you. I'll get the femme de ménage to make up a room for you upstairs. Do you have any luggage? Uh, just the one bag. That's it? That's it. I think you need some air. You take a walk, take a walk by the Seine. The night will be beautiful. And you don't... Please don't jump in. You probably fail to drown yourself and just end up with a dreadful cold. Dinner is at eight o'clock, precisely. Don't be late or I'll start without you. Ooh, I'm six hours behind. I'll have to charge you something for staying here. I always need money, and that watch is gold. You're a pirate, Madame Gerard. That's and, and that's pretty much the tone of it. Do you get so? I mean. Here's the thing. It's uh, well, Kristen Scott Thomas then turns up. She's the daughter. You can see immediately when she turns up that what's going to happen is there's going to be you know conflict and then there's going to be reconciliation and the, and and it's well played. Although I have to say a little bit kind of irksome and a little bit twee. There's an awful lot of breast beating about uh, the pains of being an unloved child and the incestuous deviousness of uh, of parents and the adult world. And it all plays out. I mean, you could you could literally sit down at the beginning and go, okay, that's the setup. Here's how it's going to resolve itself, and then and, and then that is. But uh, on route there are some interesting performances and some nice touches but it's it, it's not great and it certainly doesn't leap off the screen in the way that it may once have uh, you know have, have leapt off the stage which brings us and that film is called it's called my old lady my old lady very it's, good yes, and, and where does it bring us it brings us to uh, winter sleep which is the can palm door winner from turkish director nuri bilga chalan um, this won the Palme d'Or earlier this year. And I thought it was a, a really wonderful film. I should say from the outset, it's over three hours long. And I've in the past been very critical of movies being, you know, being too long for the sake of it. And I, you, you really think, you know, you're going to feel three hours. Actually, in the case of this, I didn't at all. It's a movie which takes its time and in many ways is kind of feels closer in its conversational structures to a novel. It's a story about um, a retired actor now living uh, in the uh, in, in, a, in a sort of bijou hilltop hotel in which he writes these incredibly pompous, in Anatolia writes these incredibly pompous columns for the local newspaper about morality and about religion and about art. And he considers himself to be, you know, a thespian and artist. But in fact, he's a landlord. And we discover very early on that he delegates his landlord responsibilities of the buildings that are owned uh, around the hotel to, uh, to his, uh, his aid and also to debt collectors who aren't uh, scared to rough up the tenants when necessary. And at the very beginning of the, uh, of the drama, a stone is thrown at his car and the st- Stone fractures the car window and fractures so much more. And during the rest of the drama, we see the facade of the character that he has built slowly starting to fall apart as it turns out that all the people over whom he lords it actually have these bitter, broiling resentments, whether it's 
his uh, sister who is now divorced and who is experimenting with the concept of not resisting evil, whether it is his wife who feels incredibly trapped by their marriage and is attempting to find some form of self-justification in her charitable works to which he sneers, whether it is the, the local tenants who he has treated badly and who are trying to find some way of actually you know, solving this problem without being humiliated. There's a, a one terrifying sequence in which the, the young child is brought to apologise for throwing the stone and there's a whole thing about trying to get the child to kiss man's hand kiss Aiden's hand and the child doesn't want to do it and Aiden doesn't want to do it but there's a kind of there's a there's almost a tableau which almost like a you know like a like sort of Roman emperor holding up his hand to be kissed by the child and as the drama moves on the characters have conversations lengthy conversations and one of the conversations I think lasts about 20 minutes and it's the sort of stuff that you would expect, as I said, more in a novel. I mean, the, 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 the film has very, very uh, literary roots. It, uh, it credits Chekhov and it you know, acknowledges Voltaire and there are nods towards Sartre. And I think stylistically, in terms of the filmmaking itself, it owes a dead to Bergman. And there's this kind of Dostoevsky and guilt theme going on underneath. But the reason that it works is, firstly, the, the really beautifully deft interactions between the characters, as you see... Each one's resentments, each one's disappointments. You see, you see in their backstory, as we would call it here, the um, all the the strange slights, the strange disappointments, the strange the same the strange resentments which have led them to be the character there are. There's one moment in which our central character is referred to as somebody who basically hates everybody. And yet he seems to be sort of smiling and benevolent. He was desperate to discuss a chance encounter that he had with Omar Sharif with his guests. And there's a lot of sort of quite, you know, highfalutin philosophical discussions and discussions of, you know, literature and morality in a way that sounds like it shouldn't be cinematic. In fact, the film takes place in an incredibly cinematic environment, which it which it then withholds from us by most of the action taking part indoors, shot in this kind of widescreen claustrophobia that you have that sort of two, three, five frame, but you're inside and you're trapped with these people inside. I think the film is about uh, wealth and poverty. It's about religion and secularism. It's about husbands and wives. And it's very, very wordy. And it's very, it's a film that requires you to give in to its own rhythm. I don't think, incidentally, that it's on a par with Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which I still think is the director's finest work. But uh, writing the script once again uh, with his wife, I think it has a really even-handed balance in the way in which it portrays its, uh, its, its gender battles. I think it's funny and wry, although fundamentally tragic. And it edges during the course of the drama towards a hint of something that approaches redemption. Uh, there was a, an interview with the director in which somebody said, look, is it a problem that it's three hours long? And he said, well, you know, we live in an age in which people will, if they don't want to watch that in the cinema, they'll watch it on, on DVD. Uh, there are a few films that I've seen in the cinema that are three hours long that I thought justified it. This was one of them. And I think the, your choice of language and your sentence and paragraph structure would suggest that is going to be movie of the week. That's, oh, thank you. How, uh, how interesting to... Well, have, it's okay. that, it's, my guess is it's going to be that or The Hunger Games uh, okay. movie, but we'll have to wait a final few minutes just to make out. You'll never guess who walked past our window here just while you were in full flow. I don't know. 
Rory Catherine-Jones, right. <laughs> technology correspondent, clearly desperate to come on the show uh, again to show us what he knows about this week. He had an instruction booklet under one arm and a mobile phone in the other. Very good. Has he got to grips with Snapchat? We have no idea. I but doubt we'll it. Find out. He looked as though he wanted to come in. I brushed him away casually. He looked away. You did all brushed. this whilst I was reviewing the film? I was listening to you as well. But I didn't even notice that you did and that with your, your eyes. Okay. Uh, uh, so let's do something else. The Homesman? Yes, that'll do. So The Homesman, which is directed by Tommy Lee Jones, based on... Um, a novel by Glyndon Swarthout, um, which has been hailed... This, is, this has caused some sort of ructions between viewers. It has been hailed in some quarters, including by some of the people who've made it, as a feminist Western. Uh, there was an interview with Hilary Swank in which she claimed it as the first feminist Western, although that may have been the headline claiming that rather than her, which, of course, it isn't. I mean, there have been feminist Westerns before. And in some ways, I can understand that in concentrating primarily... On the central character played by Hilary Swank, who is uh, Mary B. Cuddy. She's in uh, 19th century Nebraska. At the beginning of the drama, there are three uh, traumatised women who have been driven to insanity by the harshness of their domestic uh, situations. And they have to be taken from Nebraska to Iowa, where there is a place of safety for them. And they're trying to find somebody to take them. And Mary B. Cuddy, who is this woman who is used to be a teacher, came from New York, has set up her own farmstead, is constantly rebuffed by men, um, decides that she is going to do this. Very, very early on, she comes across the dangling wretch played by Tommy Lee Jones, and she insists that in repayment for her setting him free, he helps her on her journey. Here's a clip. What's the job? Three women in this country have lost their minds. Their husbands can't care for them properly. You and I are going to take them back across the river to Iowa. The Missouri River? We leave tomorrow. Hell, that's five goddamn weeks from here. I will not sit still for profanity in my house. I can see why you're single. <laughs> I need someone who can hunt and guide and spell me at the reins. And help with the animals on the trip. That's why I set you free. It's your job, and you sworn to do it. Three crazy women for five weeks is a lot more than I bargained for. If you lied to me and intend on abandoning your responsibility, then you are a man of low character. More disgusting pig than honorable man. Thank you for the kind words, sister. You're no prize yourself. You're plain as an old tin pail and you're bossy. Good. So, and that's okay. So that's the setup. And that's an. Um, you know, interesting setup, and it's a film which is, you know, it's imposingly lensed by Rodrigo Prieto. It looks, you know, the, the landscape looks harsh and uh, kind of unforgiving, and it's got grit under its fingernails. And, uh, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, you've probably seen the still of Tommy Lee Jones and Hilary Swank, in which Tommy Lee Jones has got that kind of, you know, spectacularly bewhiskered face, and he looks like that kind of saddlebag look that he has. We'll look like that soon. And Hilary Swank is terrific. And at the beginning of the film, you're thinking, this is really good. I'm, this, is re this is doing something, and it's doing it interestingly, and, you know... Uh, I suppose people might think of Meek's cutoff or, but it's, you know, it's working. And then there is a moment uh, about two thirds of the way through in which the drama suddenly decides that it's, you know, going, actually, it's not going to follow the character that you're interested in. Something happens and there is one spectacularly misjudged fireside sequence after which the, the drama really becomes interested in Tommy Lee Jones' character, who is, I have to say, less interesting than the Mary B. Cuddy character. And it's weird because it's almost as if the film suddenly sells out its central character in a way that I mean I understand that the narrative might do the narrative might do that because it's not what you expect but the problem is it kind of feels like it sells out 
the the ground that it has that it has achieved. I mean, it is it starts out being a film that is centrally concerned with a woman who is you know strong and independent and yet knocked back by men who are not her equal. And it played brilliantly by Hilary Swank and you know Tommy Lee Jones directing with that kind of Eastwood esque confidence in which nothing is overdone, nothing is overplayed, everything is you know the simplicity is the key, and you're getting a sense of the landscape. And and then it suddenly decides to sort of shortchange that. I mean, I'm trying not to give you a plot spoiler, so I won't, but for me, that therefore made it something which is hugely frustrating because all the things that are right about it, you know, it's buoyed up by brilliant performances, it's weighed down by this sort of descent into cliche, and the whole thing is kind of leavened out by the landscape. So it is a very, very mixed bag, and I came out of it feeling genuinely conflicted and thinking it's a shame because I... I thought for two thirds of it, it was a really interesting film. And then it just kind of decided that it was more interested in, you know what you were saying before? It's more interested in the other guy. Is it? And I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, blow any plot spoilers. So no, fine. Is it? Is it the best Western since Unforgiven? No. Thanks for the clarification, Mark. So uh, eight five zero five eight. We got. To, we're rattling through these. This is very good. You're doing very well, by the way. Am well I? Done. Yes. What, you managed to say that in a way which sounded oddly patronising. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Didn't okay, mean fine. Okay. Patronising is in the news at the moment. I didn't mean it in that way at all. So patronising uh, is in the news yes, at the moment. It is. Five minutes to go. What else have you got? For okay. Us? So um, this uh, film, No Good Deed, uh, starring uh, Idris Elba. This is a weird one. So the story is Idris Elba is a. Um, uh, is, is a prison SKP. He's a psychopathic character. Uh, he uh, goes up for appeal. He doesn't get his appeal. Uh, then he escapes from prison, from a prison truck, and he then goes off and uh, terrorises uh, a, a young woman, Terry Granger, played by Terry P. Henson, who, whose husband is away on business. So it's kind of a low-rent uh, home invasion exploitation movie. Now, if you just saw it straight to video, you'd kind of go, oh, all right, you know, it's I, fine. But seeing it in a cinema, you do think, well, why is this in a cinema? For a start, it, it, I think it was shot two years ago, as far as I understand. Um, outside of Idris Elba's uh, star power, which is, you know, uh, unquestionable, it is absolutely straight-to-video B-movie fare that looks sorely out of place in the cinema. I mean, it, it does the nuts and bolts stuff. It, you know, as I said, it's an exploitation movie. Actually, I don't have any problem with exploitation movies. And towards the end, it kind of does the standard final girl table-turning in a way which is kind of slightly interesting because there may be few elements that you don't quite expect or it just fulfills the exploitations and many of these nuts and bolts generic straight to video fare that happens to be seeing the inside of a cinema very briefly as it makes its way inexorably and inevitably towards the dvd shelves where it will be at home of a friday night when there isn't anything else on uh do you think yes i think this is very interesting do you have anything on what we did in the shadows yeah, yeah what we do in the shadows Yes, what we do in the shadows. By the way, on uh, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, yes. Mona Musa sent us a very, very long email full of interesting uh, thoughts. But what it boiled down to is this. We need more Toby Jones. We do. Would you say that, that, that it, it suffers from a lack? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I do uh, what we do in the shadows? 
if you've got anything on what we do in the shadows, be now good. would be a good time. So what we do in the shadows, which has been billed as uh, Spinal Tap meets Twilight, but it's actually much more kind of like Man Bites Dog meets Vampires Suck. It is a mockumentary about vampires living together in a flat. And rather than having to go out and do all the stuff which vampires do, they are trying to deal with the nuts and bolts of doing the washing up and leading a normal domestic life. It is directed by, co-written by and starring uh, Take It and Jermaine Clement, of course, from Flight of the Concords. Here's a clip. Just about to walk past a werewolf, so some might go down. Look out, guys. Don't catch fleas. What's that, mate? Historically, vampires and werewolves have always been rivals. They show up with their mates, all over the plants. Awful kind of wet fur smell. Going... <laughs> I'm not racist. I just don't like werewolves. No one likes werewolves. Lots of animals in the animal kingdom don't like werewolves. Wolves don't like werewolves. Ah, oh, oh, did that one. Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. You guys have to sign a release form. If you what? Put, can we get them what? to... What? Can we get them to sign a release We're form? We're making a documentary and you guys are going to be on it. What? Typical werewolves. You know what can you do? Now, you're looking at me with the most deadpan face. Well, I like the line, we're werewolves, not swearwolves. Not swearwolves, I yeah. quite like that. Um, Jermaine Clement's quite a tricky character to, uh, to talk to, it was my previous experience yeah. uh, with him, but his body of work is, uh, is impressive, so uh, I, I, I'm sort of unconvinced as to whether that's going to be an irritating film or whether I'm going to be tagged along with it. You'll see some absolutely uh, rip-roaring reviews. That it's, it has uh, some glowing uh, reports from critics. Uh, my feeling about it was that it, it, it's inspired by a 2005 short which they made together and it does look like the idea for a short film stretched over a feature film. There are certainly giggles uh, along the way and there are individual bits that are funny, but it doesn't feel like it has enough meat into which to sink its feature-length fangs, to be honest. And you end up thinking, this probably would have made a funny half an hour, it, you know, but at a, at a feature length, it is overstretched and the joke is not as funny as it would be were it more compact. That's not to say that it isn't funny at all. And I know in the screening I was in, there was a couple of critics who were laughing like drains and, uh, you know, just re- thought it really clearly got it. And I know what that a strange you're... expression that is. Laughing like, a, laugh, like, laughing like a hyena, I get. Laughing like a drain. It is an, exp- isn't it? It, it is an expression, though. It is, no, it yeah. absolutely is. Isn't it? I suppose it's to do with, you know, the water going down the drain, I suppose. Anyway, anyway, fine. So they were well. They were laughing like hyenas in that case. That'll do. But I thought that it, it it was gigglesome, but that's not enough for a feature. Uh, Cammy says, uh, uh, Mark and Simon, I'm currently in the process of christening my new birthday pipe whilst enjoying your excellent programme with the intention of treating myself to a viewing of Grave of the Fireflies afterwards. Am I pipe smoker number three? Very good. You absolutely are. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live Movie of the Week. Movie of the Week uh, is definitely Winter Sleep. Best uh, Western since uh, Unforgiven is The Assassination of Jesse James. Thank you for the clarification again. Next week, live on the programme, Lord Grantham, or as we're going to call him, Mr Brown. So that'll be Hugh Bonneville live on the show next week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. The podcast will be available shortly. Well, quite a while back, Rory Catherine. Well, you went all... Mick Jaggy went, but quite a while back. just looking around the corner. He seems to have disappeared. I think he it wanted was, uh, to come on. It was it. nasty. He was always the one. He was always the one for, you know. So anyway, so they went around the corner and then they, and they wrote us a song. And then they came back and they played it to us. And uh, it was horrible. So we didn't record it. Um, 
Ruttles. Yes. There you go. Four lads far from home and far from talented. The Ruttles' first album took 20 minutes to record. The second took even longer. We're going to do some music, apparently. <laughs> there is some music which you've suggested. This is your Lemonheads thing, is it? Oh, Into Your Arms, yeah. yeah. It's, it's off Come and Feel the Lemonheads, which is one of my favourite albums of all time. I just, I love that record. Is this our album of the week, then? Yes, this is our album of the week is Come and Feel the Lemonheads by the Lemonheads. We should resurrect this, really. Album of the, uh, the album of the week feature because yeah. I always used to sort of just tag it in because I, I didn't have a movie of the week feature yes. and then I would say Jesus of Cool by Nick Lowe and that yes. went on for about four years but but instead it's it's the Lemonheads now what what should we be listening for in this well this is uh, from the from the Nick Sparks uh, film and there's a moment when the young the young version of the guy gets into the pickup truck and he turns on the radio and on comes into your arms by the Lemonhead and that was by the Lemonheads and that was the point at which I I thought I love this film I don't just like it but I love it. Should we play some? Yeah, you want to have a bit? Yeah, okay. Sound. Very nice, isn't it? We have to talk I over some of it. Know I'm going, no, don't. You can't leave Bulldog Basil the there. Oh, I, 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 I just love this album. The podcast rules mean that we have to, so we apologise, but we have to talk over music, otherwise we're not allowed to have it on. There's the other thing on this album, which is, um, you know, about time, which has got that lovely line, enough about us, let's talk about me. <laughs> we should have a BBC Playlister account, which we'll set up, and then you don't have to get annoyed by any of this. Del Mixon. We, I mentioned him in passing. Anyway, here's his email. Colonial Commoner... Oh, hang on, guitar solo. Play that guitar solo. It's a brilliant solo. It's a lovely solo. Sorry, Dale. <sighs> just wait. It is. It they is go what? find those. It's just a lovely solo. It was just nondescript. It didn't really do anything. It just kind of jangled. I'm just not even going to have this conversation with Del you. Del Mixon, Colonial Commoner podcast downloaded from Oxford, Mississippi. I have long thought about writing something to the show with a clever quip or interesting question concerning movies. Unfortunately, I was never able to think of anything. However, after <laughs> downloading bye, bye. today's okay. podcast, the most remarkable opportunity arose in the first five minutes. I do smoke a pipe. I have done since I was 18. I can say it's one of the more relaxing activities one can accomplish sitting down. Thank you for providing me with the perfect excuse to write in. Big fan of the show. I have not discovered any other Wittertainees in the southern United States, but I'm converting as many as I can. So if you are in the southern United States, let us know. We'll pass you on to Del Mixon. Well, you know, if put you in touch with each other, uh, particularly for a pipe smoker. Uh, that'll be very nice. And uh, if you want to hear the full version of our new theme tune, well, it's not our new theme tune, but the theme tune has been sent in. Yes. We're not going to start. We don't do the theme tune. You said it's as long as the first side of Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, we right? will, and we'll tag and it And apparently on. if you play it with The Wizard of Oz... Would you like a nice story? Yeah. OK. I did actually ask Dave Gummel whether he'd sat and listened to Dark Side of the Moon whilst watching. Yeah. And he just thought it was funny. He said, of course it's not true. Of course it's not true. Uh, this says, Dear Ice Cream and Vodka, these references will become clearer. But okay. I'm writing to say thank you. As a novice member of the church, I've been slowly making my way through the back catalogue of podcasts. But that had led me, until late, to me delaying listening to more recent podcasts in order to get through the older ones. However, I then got dumped. 
as in don't rom- rom- as in romantically. Yeah. No, as, no. That's, that, how? Yes. How else? Yeah. Yeah. As this came as quite a surprise, uh, the dumpy. I found uh, yes. As the dumpy, I found I had a fair bit of extra time on my hands. I was desperately searching for something fun and joyous to be the crutch I would heavily lean on to ensure I didn't mull over the minutiae and insignificant details of a relationship breakdown. I was searching for something... Joycey and prose, this is. Yes, I was searching for something that would also not have negative implications on my health. Would also not have negative implications. This is is great. Or at least not as negative as my first ports of call of of detraction. (laughs) Ice cream and vodka. By now, I suspect you see where this is going. Yeah. At last, I was able to work both ends of the Wittertainment podcast wormhole and fill my spare time with more podcasts, which I listened to walking the beautiful beaches and cliffs of Sydney. Health positive. Of course, the good, no superb doctor's reviews, as well as the insightful commentary of the fabulous followers you've collected from around the globe, provided me with a wonderful selection of movie recommendations that were so much more engaging than he's just not that into you or some such lamentable rom-com well-meaning friend suggested after the breakup. (laughs) I have seen movies I would never have ventured near, such as Monsters, Pan's Labyrinth, Of Time and The City, and so it carries on. So thank you, quiet, so thank you to both for the laughter and joy needed to help mend a cracked heart, and to all those who are part of the wittertainment world for being my ice cream and vodka. I'm sure you'll be not at all surprised to learn that the dumper was not a member of the church and had the gall to say, get this, we finish with this, had the gall to say, I don't really get why people watch movies. This relationship was doomed from the start. Even if you don't go very often, what a hopeless thing to say. I don't understand why people watch movies. I mean, clearly, <laughs> anonymous person. How did you? Lo- how did you even? How did you even, even get even, together I, in I, the I, first I mean, place? I, 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 you love it. It just. It, it, I, I got it. You know, how, even is it going to work? Hopeless. Anyway, we've cracked. We've cracked a broken heart. No, we've healed a cracked. Oh, never mind. Ice cream and vodka. What do you think? What's that? Yeah, I think ice cream will get. What is that song? Um, I uh, heal broken hearts. And this I, is going to be a good no, no, moment it, now. No, what is that song? Which it, is I, I heal broken hearts and I'll be. What is that? Don't know. Should we come back next week and give an answer? Oh yeah, because I'll have remembered it by next week. I could, Why don't we just sit here then as a podcast extra? I, you can tell a, us. There's a song which is I heal broken hearts and I'll be good for you. What is it? Okay, here's the thing. We're yeah, going to play the full the version of the song. Yeah. Then if you have, so stay with this. If you have actually remembered the name of this song, it will crop up at the end of the theme. If you haven't, yes. it's just going to be silent for okay. 18 hours. <laughs> All right? Because we're going to make this a super long okay. download. All right? So here's the theme tune for, for one week only. Who knows if Mark's going to have thought of the song. Okay. Let's hang on a bit. What's up? Well, Grimey Charlie, it's that live, live thing with flappy hands and Charles Moultrie talking. It's wittertainment and it's most wittertaining with flappy hands and Charles Moultrie talking. Let me introduce you to wittertainment. It's a dead amaze, accomplishment. If you like two men bickering, it's just the ticket. It's like Test Match Special, but without the cricket. It's the UK's flagship film programme. It might save your life or help you pass an exam. But the humble presenters will rarely gloat because they still don't know who's driving the boat. 
And disharmony, but it beat having to watch Sex and the City. Well, blimey, Charlie, it's that five life thing with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. It's wittertainment and it's wittertaining with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. Well, Michael Bay has gone too far. It's the death of narrative cinema. He's cast Megan Fox to be in Transformers of the Caribbean. Resulting film won't be nice, only a commodian rant will suffice. How long it will last, I just don't know. But it'll make Mayo late for his Radio 2 show. Well, blimey, Charlie, it's that five life thing with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. It's entertainment and it's most entertaining with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. What's up, what's up, what's up? first contributed to Mayo's show. Simon's impersonations are a tad absurd. Was that Fozzie Bear or Douglas Hurd? His interviews are engaging stuff, though Naomi wants to off in a huff. Do anything to make your day except play the Comsat Angels on all request Friday. Well, blimey, Charlie, it's that five-life thing with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. Entertainment and it's most entertaining with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. Well, blimey, Charlie, it's that five life thing with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. It's entertainment and it's most entertaining with flappy hands and Charles Hawtrey talking. Did you but find it? It's driving me nuts. Oh, never mind. It's not, and it's not that more Chiba thing that people. It's no, it's it's an old. It's a song from. It's like from the six. Oh, he'll broken heart. Not interested. I'll be good for, if, so, listen, interested. If, I'm sorry. If anybody, I don't care whether you're interested or not. Interested. If anyone's listening to this podcast, tweet me what the name of this wretched song is. It's got he'll broken hearts and it's something like I'll be good for you. It's something like that. It's an old Dennis Waterman. What? I'll be good for you. No! I could be so good for you. That one. That's what it is. All right, my son. Then I'm all leave it out. No bother as it happens. It's your shout straight up. Pull the other in a right two and eight. No bother. What's the damage, John? Who's your mate? The geezer in a bunny with a trilby hat. Looks like a jit, but he ain't all that. Arthur Daly, a little dodgy maybe, but underneath, he's, he's all, all right. right, is Arthur. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live. <laughs> 